Are you a fan of the small ball? I'm not as dramatic in now as GM. Dramatic? You sound like my wife now. Jealous of all the inside analysis and crack on the football pod? Well, we've got you covered with the Hurling Pod. Subscribe to the Hurling Pod feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, very welcome along this Monday morning. It's Sharon on with you all the way through until 10 o'clock. It was a bewildering weekend of sport with so much coming at you. If there's something you want to get off your chest, if there's a viewpoint you'd like us to air, whatever you want, uh, feel free to leave a comment in the YouTube stream or you can text us on 0879-180-180. As well as that, we're on uh, Twitter, at OffTheBallAM. Owen, good morning to you. How are you? Very well, Ger. How are you? Where do you want to start? Oh, yeah, bewildering weekend. That's uh, that's one way to, to describe it. What, what bewildered you more than anything else? Uh, well, you would have missed all the great stuff. Um, uh, Sixth Gold Thriller in the Camogie. Uh, Hannah Terrell, who we're going to speak to in about 10 minutes, or sorry, in about half an hour, kicks a winner in stoppage in stoppage time in women's football, which is like after the buzzer, really. It's like there's literally room for the last kick of the game, which I, is, is a brilliant thing. Like, there's a great thing happening over there. If only we could do this. Or, where, like... Time is zero zero zero, and you know it's win or bust at this. There's no like, oh, let the referee kick it out. Let them have one more go. Oh, that's not fair. It's like no, that's the rules. Everybody knows what it is. There's a clock. Everybody's seeing the clock, and there was a huge crowd at it as well. Manchester United. I mean, come on, we're going to get into that in the performance ranking in a minute. So I know that we're not going to talk too much about it. But the other side of the Manchester United stuff is that everybody's focused on the Man United stuff. But that City team in that second half. Yeah, well, you know, when you when you buy the right players and you have the right management in place, and everybody knows what they're supposed to do, it's a pretty compelling spectacle. Mm. Yeah, it, it is, and like it, I think that there is sort of a similar situation here where this could have been like, where it was exactly like the first game between these two sides, where it could have been a lot worse on the scoreline. Manchester United I think getting away with 6-1 on aggregate over the two games is an absolute miracle for Manchester United Would you say oh, and it was a moral victory would you say that um, you know a team uh, yes. as good as uh, Manchester City if you if you accept that uh, that was your that was that was the duffer setup. Yeah. But go on. Yeah, no, it is a mar- It is absolutely a mar- <laughs> victory. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not even giving the, the the duffer credit to, to Manchester United on, on this occasion. I think that they will walk off uh, feeling that this could have been uh, a Liverpool style hammering, which both of these games c- could very well have been. Like when you've got Joao Cancelo uh, trying semi bicycle kicks from outside the area when there was absolutely well okay maybe there was a little bit of a need but there, there wasn't really any need to do it and when you got the, the fans in the pause now they're not even watching the game you know things have got pretty bad and it like I mean it, we've sat here so many times and said this is the this is the lowest of the low this is the worst it can get it's not though we, uh, you know. I'm not sure if it is because uh, it, it, we are still on this kind of water slide of doom for Manchester United I don't think they've splashed into the into the pool just yet. No, what a great analogy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a Monday morning analogy right there. We'll, uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, the, in the hurling, uh, Tony Kelly was like was doing Tony Kelly stuff after, like, you know, uh, comes, comes straight back into the team after injury and is uh, just as good, if not even better, than he ever has been. And Limerick's still without a win. They're not worried, though, because they've used a gazillion players in the league. Are we... Are we just saying this is this is exactly what you would do if you were the manager of a team like that? You know that they're going to be brilliant come championship time. You want to find some new players. You want to strengthen the depth that you have. And this does not matter. Is that what's going on? 
Yeah, it does not matter. Like there is no way that we can look at in the recent past of the hurling league and say that, that it matters to these teams because it just doesn't. It doesn't matter anywhere near as much as say the football league would matter to the football teams. It's just given the format, given the lack of threat. Um, like there will be taught, like to, it is a cliche that's thrown out about so many Premier League teams that are too good to get relegated. They'll be fine. Like Limerick are going to be fine, obviously, because they still have to play. Awfully, don't they? So they'll get a win in that game and they'll stay up and they'll preserve their position. And that's all you need to do as long as you're playing these games and, and throwing the untested players in against the other top counties in the months of February and March. That's all the Hurling League exists for nowadays. Sorry, it was, it was a bewildering weekend. Razzy Rasmus says he didn't leak the video. That was yesterday. Today he says he thinks the, uh, South Africa should be in the Six Nations. There's that. We, we haven't even talked about uh, Bennett scoring, was it 116 against Tipperary? Tipperary also. What the hell happened then in the Hurling? There was something else there that you were, when you were talking. Oh, uh, Jack Byrne was in studio on Saturday with the lads on, on uh, OTV Football Saturday and the conversation turned to Keen Lynch and he was like, yeah, Keen Lynch is one of the best footballers I've ever seen. Mm. Bear in mind, like Jack Byrne came through at Man City with like a group of some of the best footballers that the world is actually watching on a day-to-day basis. He's like, oh, that guy was the best footballer on the pitch when we were playing against him. Uh, Keane Lynch, two-footed, left hand, yeah. right foot. I'm like, right. He, would he have been a striker? Is that what he is like? Is this is this one of those great lost? He's like, anyway, go back and look at the clip. It was sensational. Like, was I mean, something else was there? Is there something else? But, uh, just, oh, Roy McElroy. Yeah, oh, McElroy, like shoots the light that Thursday, worst round of the week Sunday. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I to be honest with you, I, I don't even, I don't care one bit about Roy McElroy. I don't care one bit about that particular tournament. The, the Puerto Rico Open is where things were at at the weekend. So, I mean, you can take your top tier PGA Tour professionals all you want, but for me, it's for the genuine players at the Puerto Rico Open what's not the, least what's the course where the Puerto Rico Open was held the Grand Reserve Country Club <laughs> <laughs> uh, where uh, we had a 35 year old Michigan player called Ryan Brem uh, shoot the lights out win by six strokes at the end just so happens that Ryan Brem may have been one of John Duggan's tips in Virtual Insanity last week and Unbelievable. I may or may not be on the Virtual Insanity bandwagon this year. I can officially say at 7.36 on this Monday morning, I would die for Ryan Brem. I would also die for John Duggan, to be honest with you, and, and Virtual Insanity. Uh, what an absolutely phenomenal uh, moment this was to be uh, a 50 to 1 shot. Uh, I think actually 66 to 1 is what John got him at. And, uh, and watch him coast home at the end. It's, uh, he, he goes right into the pantheon alongside Luke List of 2022 Golf Heroes. So, Virtual Insanity, it's not been a bad year so far. Yeah, okay. So, uh, otbsports.com forward slash Virtual Insanity if you want the update on that. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Our performance rankings are imminent. Hannah Terrell is going to join us at 10 past 8. We've got the sports pages at half 8. We'll get Colin Milani's assessment on Roy McElroy. Uh, after that, David Moyer is going to join us at 8.45 to look back on another routine enough squeaky bum time win for Liverpool, which put the pressure on Manchester City. And how did they respond to the pressure? By absolutely thumping Manchester United. Uh, Alan Quinn is going to join us at 10 past 9. Manu Tulagi is out. Ireland are going to win next weekend. It's as simple as that. And then Jack Byrne, that Jack Byrne goodness coming your way at half past nine. At 7.37 though, it is time for the performance rackings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. Boom. Right. 
I notice you're actually you're in the green you're putting yourself in the green this week Owen it's a bit of a flex move from you to go I I am green uh, you know because you're the, the king I'm the powerful overlord on this desk over here as as I wage war uh, in a kind of multiverse that's very very far away from here the Wizard of Oz that's exactly what it is yeah you're the one playing <laughs> the piano behind that's you so Anna, sorry, uh, good God, United are shambles, says Shane, they should occupy both red positions on the rankings. And Brian says, Rory, lads. Rory, 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 Rory. Like the thing is, these two stories are actually relatively similar. Uh, one is very predictable uh, and uh, a sort of a disaster waiting to happen whenever you watch them. And the other one is either Rory McIlroy or Manchester United, depending how you want to deliver that punchline. And uh, I think it was, there was an inevitability to it. I think that the lads on Thursday Night Show, Joe and Nathan, were talking about how a, an early first-round lead for Rory McIlroy is not something that gives you a lot of confidence whatsoever. Now, I guess the flip side of that is that Manchester United, going up against Manchester City at the Etihad, might have been something that would have given... Uh, Manchester United fans some level of confidence given their record in that fixture over the last five or six years but I do think that what yesterday exposed was that that statistic was a little bit of a fluke over the last little while there was uh, there, there was a, a certain degree of tactical shrewdness I would say around Solskjaer's era where he was able to to take down some of the better teams um, but I think all of that was probably absent yesterday I think the players have shipped most of the blame and it's really interesting because of who is uh, shifts, who is kind of taking on most of this blame because with no Cristiano Ronaldo in the team yesterday, uh, you had one of their go-to scapegoats not available for any scapegoating yesterday. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong that Ronaldo has taken a lot of the blame for Manchester United's performances this season, but the blame was there and it wasn't possible to blame him yesterday. What was also interesting, I thought, is that Paul Pogba gets taken off after 64 minutes and arguably their worst quarter of football is after that. I'm not saying that if Paul Pogba stays on there, he would have, you know, G'd his team up to um, put in a, a far more enthusiastic performance than the complete collapse that we saw yesterday. But it's just telling that all of a sudden, uh, possibly the two most scapegoatable people, uh, with the exception of maybe Harry Maguire, weren't actually on the pitch for that last quarter, which was a complete and utter shambles. And I think what Roy Keane has gone to, uh, he's gone nuclear with uh, the kind of the, the sort of comments that he's made yesterday. So I don't think there's. I think the, the embarrassment, a shame, a shame on you. I think was was his phrase. Then there's nowhere left to go after that. So this has to be the lowest point so far. Uh, it has to be the lowest point so far. Uh, I guess. Well, there there have been seasons where they haven't qualified for the Champions League. Obviously, not many, but uh, it has happened. Um, I, do, I like. This is the middle of the cycle. This is uh, we're we're not near the end. Like. Because, say say a new manager comes in and say you get Jurgen Klopp, it takes him time to get the squad to the level where it needs to be. And you look around the squad, like there's definitely, there's bits where you think, okay, maybe under the right manager, somebody like Jaden Sancho played okay in that first half yesterday. You can do stuff with him. But of the rest of the players who were there, is Bruno, is Bruno the, the tactical anarchist that um, people say? Or is that just because he has yet to find a manager who actually can unlock him? Solskjaer is not going to be, sorry Solskjaer Ronaldo is not going to be there next season more than likely you start going through the team the two sub fullbacks are they better than the first choice allegedly first choice fullbacks it's hard to tell the difference between them they're all relatively interchangeable but maybe under a brilliant manager you know somebody like Antonio Conte who had the the ability to improve people and I'm not saying Conte himself but somebody like that or maybe Conte himself who knows 
Like, is there anybody in that squad who you're going to think, okay, I'm going to hang my hat on this? Fred, McTominay, Maguire, Lindelof. Who, who's, who's staying? Even, even De Gea, who is a brilliant, brilliant shot stopper, isn't really set up to be the type of goalkeeper who's going to take the ball off the defenders, move them up the pitch a bit, you know, distribute the ball brilliantly the way all of the other top teams have goalkeepers who can do that. Like, this is not the beginning of the end. Mm. This is not even the end of the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, this is like this is a, a a team that has been overhauled and they've looked at the overhaul and they very much do not like the look of it. So it's all of a sudden you're getting into the, the second and, and third stages of the post Alex Ferguson transition. The first transition, like you'd probably say Moyes into Van Hal was a complete disaster. The, the middle kind of Jose Solskjaer era also not great and now this is sort of like the third wave it feels of well the cultural reset remember that what was that about that was um, Solskjaer and uh, the previous administration as it was now before the current CEO talked about a cultural reset where they were going to get out of the boom or bust cycle of sacking managers and spending big on players who failed there will be no more Angle Di Maria's now it's going to be Harry Maguire's um, like nothing, nothing seems to work. I, I saw somebody on on Twitter like McGuire, the ball comes back off for the second goal when it's one all still, and you know you might be able to claw your way to victory or at least a one all. Uh, the ball comes back from the first shot, and McGuire lets it run through his legs back into play as opposed to just hoofing it out. Even the stuff that he can do, he's not doing. That was nothing to do with being flat-footed or not having pace. It was just a... It's just a brain fart. Yeah. Like, but what's really interesting is where is that coming from? Like, I mean, what we're now seeing is the a sort of mental capitulation in so many significant moments for Manchester United now as well that clearly the severity of the situation has got inside all of their heads and they've completely frozen as, as footballers as well. So Harry Maguire isn't good enough for Manchester United. I think we all know that but he's also not as bad as he's been showing over the last couple of weeks because there's also the, uh, the the mental aspect of this thing, which means he's just completely bereft of confidence, does not believe in, in his ability to do something very simple, like put the ball out for a corner when the ball is right near six-yard box. And what we're seeing is just a, a, a complete shambles from him at, at this point that's actually worse than the real Harry Maguire, I would say. I'm not saying the real Harry Maguire is any good, but the version that we're seeing at the moment is even worse than the bad reality that he is so uh, it's, it's everything is just slowly but surely getting worse and and the, the trouble is that they're stuck because it's, if you come in as the manager and the, the chief executive and the football guys are saying look we've invested so much money in this and we've got loads of sunk costs in this can you make this work the, 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 the likelihood is that they're going to find a manager because yeah I can make that work no problems of course I can I can rescue Maguire I can get that money back for you I can I can keep David De Gea I can keep these players and just get no, just, you just need a little tweak an extra 5-10%. But that's wrong. Those players are not going to be able to win the league. Those players are not going to be players who catapult you to winning a Champions League or competing for a Champions League. That's not going to happen. You need that full clear-out to happen. And that does not happen in one transfer window. It happens over a long period of time. And it happens through a period of bad results as you're like integrating new players into the team. And it, it, could, take a, it could take a team not being very good for a significant chunk and I'm not saying years and years, but like it could be 18 months of the next manager coming in and apparently failing while building something new 
before you actually start seeing the fruits of what they're doing. Mm. But unless you have that vision collectively that everybody is behind, then nothing's going to fix. Yeah, and like you, you talk about a, a cultural reset that may or may not have uh, been attempted at Manchester United a few years ago. Like I don't think that was replicated whatsoever in terms of the personnel. There was no personnel reset. There was the constant policy of arriving at the summertime and saying, right, who can we spend 80 million quid on this summer to try and paper over a crack in the team? Like It was completely... Um, it was completely rejected almost as a, as a talking point yesterday in Sky when, when Dave Jones tried to bring up the idea that maybe Manchester United should look towards an Arsenal model. And I'm not saying that the Arsenal model is, has worked or anything like that. We'll see at the end of the season. But it will be better than the current way Manchester United are going. Like, have a policy, have, have some sort of identity in terms of your recruitment, saying, right, we're going to go young for the time being. And it's not like Arsenal have spent no cash. They were the biggest spenders last summer, but they were spending it on... A plan. Again, time will tell whether or not this, this thing does work out, but it's, it's a plan at least. There's a recruitment drive towards you know, getting younger players in who play a certain brand of football and they know exactly who their manager is yeah. and what style of football their manager at least wants to play. And it, there is a gamble to it. Of course, there's a gamble with everything you do in football. But it feels like Manchester United are gambling completely blind. They're not even, they're not even looking at, at what the dealer has. Look, like they're, they're just completely saying, right, let's just keep lumping on this. Look at, look at what Arsenal did when they had to make the decision about spending the money to get rid of Aubameyang and continuing to have his influence in the club. They spent the money to get rid of him. They sacked him. Mm. They paid him off. He's now going off and doing great stuff for somebody else. But they're not concerned about that because they made the right decision for them. Even though they couldn't get anybody in at the last moment and they didn't get Vlavic. Manchester United could have got Vlavic. That's the difference. Like if you, if you are Man United, you can accelerate the process. If you have a, if you have a process in place, you can spend big. But you need to get rid of all those players who are clogging up the opportunities and who aren't trying to leg, and who are writing the... Sorry, just while we're on the statement, City, right? I mean, because, you know, that was one of the big clips that uh, Sky Sports picked out for Keane yesterday. Did you see the John Joe Shelby statement? <laughs> no, no, in relation to... They won. Yeah. Newcastle won. Yeah. Newcastle issued a statement from John Joe Shelby yesterday where he said he was disappointed with his own performance <laughs> and that he would do better, but it was great that they managed to dig out the win anyway. <laughs> A winning, a winning player making an apology statement. Uh, it, uh, what was? It? I didn't understand it. Who's the market for this? Who is the target market? Like, are there are there people going? Oh yeah, good man, Shelby. Like, there, yeah, there might uh, be. I'm I'm going to die for you now, John Joe. There might be. There, like, I will chant louder because you have issued this apology. Was he getting? Maybe he was getting booed by the fans. I don't know, but I, I can't imagine they're booing Shelby. Like, is he not one of their? Anyway, sorry, heroes. we got distracted. I, I think there, there may be. Like, there has to be some sort of method to this. Like, maybe there, there is uh, very one-eyed fans who feel personally insulted by a couple of misplaced passes here and there, and they demand. Uh, an apology and, and they do really view themselves as customers and yeah. you know we should pander to those people they're the best people that we need to keep on our side it's important we um, we always act in their with their best interest you should always have one of those imaginary in your head going what would the uh, top off rippling dude say now when is he is he booing my sideways pass he probably is uh, a reminder, OTBM brought to you by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Every week we're giving away a Gillette Labs shaving kit to be with the chance of winning. Let us know who you think should make the performance rankings. Best place to enter is the Off The Ball Instagram page. You'll see the comments box in our story. Yeah, I'm just reading that John Joe Shelby statement. That's absolutely bonkers. 
Uh, Isaac Hayden came out to quote tweet this statement and was like a Rolls Royce of a player excellent again yesterday during a tough game but not a lot of ball so not sure did he play well or did he not play well somebody's lying here in the, the case of, of John Joe Shelby on, against Brighton at the weekend um, it is not Manchester United in the other red slot today believe it or not we're actually going to go uh, to the Antrim hurling here which feels a, a little bit harsh but the reality of why we want to bring this up is actually because of um, Cheddar Plunkett's comments in the aftermath of the game yesterday between Leash and Antrim. Leash beat Antrim by a point, 120 at 119. Obviously a massive win uh, for Leash in the context of getting relegated and trying to stay up in the top tier in Division 1 of hurling. And uh, he says, I have a great draw for Antrim. They're in a similar position to ourselves. To be honest with you, nobody in the GEA gives a fiddlers about our counties. It's up to ourselves to do something about us because nobody else is going to do it for us. I have great regard for the Carlos and Westmeads and Antrims. We know for the last 20 or 30 years we're in that middle tier. All of us, including ourselves in Antrim, think we have the ability to step up. We need support to do that, and it's not forthcoming. That's why I have massive regard for Antrim hurling and their club hurling. And he said it would give him the greatest pleasure to see Antrim bursting through this bloody ceiling. And like He's not the first person to say this, but it is interesting. This is coming from an inter-county manager who's playing in Division 1 at the moment. And it sometimes feels, and we've had this conversation already on the show this morning, that the hurling league gets a, a bit of a bashing because it's not as good as the league championship and the league championship is amazing because you've got the best teams in, in the country going toe-to-toe at the best time of the year and I guess if we wanted everything our own way in the, the, the National Hurling League at the moment we would see just the top teams going up against just the other top teams it would just be a monster championship all over again and we wouldn't have uh, Leash and Antrim in, in the division which is uh, admittedly very unfair and, and not right when you think about how you actually want to try and improve the game. Uh, there is uh, an elite coterie of, of counties who are obviously pushing the standards out further and further and the only way that that's not going to happen, the only way you have some sort of connection between them and the rest is if teams like Antrim and Leash are actually playing in with them. But then at the same time, the flip side of it is that there's sometimes there is a bit of window dressing and they will constantly be yo-yo teams. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what uh, if, the, like the, if these comments... Um, Get, get many people exercised this morning, but it is interesting that that you do have somebody coming out as an intercounty manager saying they don't care about us. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. Like, is a team who was going to be in Division One again next year as a result of this? It obviously heartbreaking for Antrim Hurling, given how well they've played. Their points differential, I think, is like seven or eight points. Leach's points differential is minus forty. Um, Antrim's is minus seven, and, and Antrim are going to—they've lost every game by a score or two. Um, you know, they they could have drawn slash beaten Waterford last week and then this week they lose to uh, Antrim or they lose to Leash and Portleash which is you know devastating for them and the work they put in because really you would have made them favourites to win that game but I think in this moment of victory the fact that Cheddar Plunkett has taken this opportunity to look across and say we need help and we need to be listened to and somebody needs to do something for us it's up to us you know he, he was very reflective it is up to us to help ourselves but like the other hurling counties they're the ones with the actual power to do something about this you know Kilkenny could reach over and help Leash it would be in their long term interest to do so Cork and Tipperary and Galway I mean in fairness if you look at this shit show that has been getting Galway and underage Galway teams into Leinster you would get the impression that hurling people are less, certainly the administrators in those hurling counties are less interested in helping other hurling counties than they would pretend to be, that there's a lot of lip service and a lot of talk about it. Uh, but ultimately, the problem the problem gets solved by money and investment. If you invest in coaches and games development officers in hurling in these counties, you could 
get the standard up massively over a, a long period of time. It takes a long period of time. It takes a massive amount of investment. But who's who's advocating for that? Where's that conversation happening? Yeah, the, re- the reality is it's, it's not. And uh, we're going to have these little islands of hurling, like particularly when you look at the, the case of Antrim, uh, trying to punch above its weight, kind of on its own, uh, swimming away. And, um, and what we're going to have is is a constant sort of purgatory of, of this thing where the, the glass ceiling probably won't be broken, but it can be broken, and, um, and maybe something does change down the line. Um, we move on to the Amber this morning. Um, we've got England rugby in there this morning, the, the grand. It is England week, uh, of course, in the Six Nations. Paul O'Connell described them as bubbling along last week. Eddie Jones himself has said that uh, we are blatantly uh, trying to peak for the World Cup, but... The patience is wearing thin, I think it's fair to say, within England rugby supporters uh, around Eddie Jones, around the fact that maybe he's put his hands up and said, listen, we're not actually overly worried about how we finish up in this year's Six Nations or even next year's uh, Six Nations. You've got Manu Tuilagi who's got injured yet again. A few questions around the the intensity of those training camps that puts his hamstrings under such pressure that he's now going to m- miss another couple of games. And I guess it's good news for Ireland. Uh, where England are at is a, is a really interesting question right now because I don't doubt for one second that Eddie Jones will have them in a really good place for next year's World Cup. Is he going to still exist? Because that's the, the thing. That's it. There's like a massive push on from the English rugby press, their former players. They want rid of Jones. They've had enough. They're talking about maybe, mm, who, who could we get? Who would be good for us? Oh, Andy Farrell would be good. And there was even talk of them trying to get Lancaster back. Um, but, like, what are they talking about? This guy is brilliant at getting teams ready for the World Cup. And the World Cup is all that matters. Like, England can win another championship. What, what difference is it going to make to them? Mm. Like, and I guess there's a chance that even with Eddie Jones and a team that isn't firing at all cylinders, they can still pick up Six Nations here and there. They don't need to be at their very best to win a Six Nations, whereas Ireland, for example, tend to need to be very, very good to, to win a Six Nations. The same probably goes uh, for Wales and Scotland, whereas France and England and the resources that they have, they can be fine and they can still have a really good chance of winning a Six Nations. So the thing is, when England don't contend for a Six Nations, uh, they've really underperformed and it, it is remarkable that, that that has happened so often over the last little while. But you can't argue with Eddie Jones and his record in a World Cup. And at tw- in 2018, uh, you, w- like you would have got long odds on England making a World Cup final. And then come 2019, it looked as if they were one of the best teams in the world. So he's got, he's got a very recent track record of doing it. If I was uh, an England fan right now, to be honest, I, maybe this is just coming from an, an Ireland, uh, or looking at this through an Ireland prism, I would probably want Eddie Jones to stay on because as you say the World Cup is if you get good World Cup results it makes up for everything in between yeah. uh, I mean the here and now is also important as a sports fan but the World Cup is to be all and end all maybe, that, maybe that's just speaking as an Irish person and uh, you know getting to a quarter final is, is our limit and would you give uh, Andy Farrell a new contract just to ward off any of these issues well I, I think at this point the RFU are probably delighted with how Andy Farrell has done and, and I think it would be surprising if they weren't planning on handing out a new contract. I don't know what the reality is of the the links to England, how real the threat is of him getting poached, but uh, there's obviously been a, a few situations in the not-too-distant past in, in Irish rugby, especially with the likes of uh, Munster getting um, getting coaches uh, taken away or coaches wanting to leave. And, I mean, the pull for someone like Razzy Erasmus back to his home country was, was quite a big deal. Does, does Andy Farrell still feel the same way towards England or... 
does the history, his own history within the England camp, has that soured that to the point where he's uh, he's a Dubliner now. He's been living yeah. here for a long time. It's a great, great place to live, yeah. especially when things are going well for you. You know, it's like the only thing is that you know his his son could literally pick up the phone and say, "Listen." Go, go on twenty twenty seven. His other younger son could play for Ireland if we keep yeah, him. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, that's that. what I, I'm actually. That's been at the back of my thinking this whole time. Like, we should just give him a, like a lifetime contract here, <laughs> some kind of professor emeritus of Irish rugby after this. If he if he doesn't want to be head coach anymore, just to make sure that you know the next one plays for us. Who's who's more essential to Irish rugby, Stuart Lancaster or, or Andy Farrell? Well, they're both pretty important, aren't they? Ironic that their failure at the World Cup has resulted in a blossoming in Irish rugby. Mm. So you'd want to keep them both around if possible. Yeah. Failure, not a bad thing, it turns out. Well, certainly you can learn from it. There setbacks in sports. Ooh, who knew that was something you could learn from? Uh, suggestions sent into the OTV Instagram story. Stephen Bennett, Stephen Bennett Magic, says Uno Grady and Kevin Ivers. Cork Hurler says Mike Campbell. Colin Brady says Put Man United in the red. We did. Dean McCauley says Derry City, top of the league, lads. End of. After a 1-0 win at Talca Park. We haven't talked about Duffer yet, but we will a bit later. Tyke Fanning says Cork Hurler's green. Seem to be building a nice squad with serious attack and improving defence. And they're doing all the best Cork things that you would want to see. Like fast, hard-running you know, beautiful striking, and yet at the same time, they're also kind of niggly, tight in defence, uncork-like when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, so uh, look, the red storm is rising. We've been saying it for so long. Eventually, we're going to be right. Even the stop clock is right <laughs> twice a day. Uh, just uh, on that, like you mean, the, you mentioned uh, Derry City there and and their win against uh, Shelburne last week this kind of brings us nicely onto, onto the green we're going to do a bit on Irish football here uh, Damien Duff has been good value I think in most of his media dealings so far to say the least he was uh, speaking in the aftermath of the game last week he said first of all just on the, on the pitch he said forget about save Talca Park save the pitch or give us a new pitch and then uh, there was uh, questions regarding the margin of defeat they lost 1-0 to a side who would consider themselves to be title contenders. The problem for Shelburne at the moment, it seems, is that they just can't score a goal. Uh, but getting uh, getting a one 0 defeat would that have been a moral victory? And uh, probably no prizes for guessing how Damien Duff would have responded to such a question. Can I curse? No, that comment from me is utter bollocks. That's what I told the lads. If it's one of them, oh, it's okay because we've lost one 0 to Derry. We can all effing leave the building and get a new staff and get a new squad in. Did we create a lot on Friday? No. Were we good on the ball? No but we never felt threatened. But to go in and say, that's all right, we'll take the 1-0? No. Effing no. No chance. So excuse my French. I've not seen that, but letting them know, what, that's not what I think either. So absolutely not. I haven't spotted it, but never will because I've uh, flung my hat on the guys and they're a great group. So uh, don't talk about giants sleeping giants. Don't talk about uh, moral victories. They're the two rules of uh, engaging in media dealings with um with Damien Duff, it seems. But let's broadcast these live in future because they're yes. they are box office. 100%. So, uh, also, speaking of Irish football, yeah. Michael Obafemi's in the green. Yeah. Uh, my, how many Ireland caps do you think Michael Obafemi has? Seven. One. What? Michael Obafemi has one Ireland cap. Wow. It was that, uh, the time um, uh, Martin O'Neill stuck him in to get him capped, essentially. Um, that's the only time he's, he's played for Ireland. Um, he's been brilliant over the last seven games, in particular for Swansea City. He's dropped down to the Championship after a pretty tough little while. Like I mean, and it's it's been a situation where Michael Obafemi has not only 
been playing poorly for a while, but he's also been kind of questioned about his professionalism. And I'm sure it's been a pretty challenging time, but it looks like there are early shoots of uh, a resurgence very early in his career. Let's not forget. So it's five goals in his last seven games at this point, two goals and an assist at the weekend. And uh, you can watch the goals online. They were brilliant, sort of uh, playing off the last man as a central striker. That raw pace, that we don't really have in the squad is something that uh, I think Stephen Kenny will probably try and tap into with his next squad. Let's not forget that as well. Stephen Kenny's first Ireland squad included eight forwards in it, and not one of them was Michael Obafemi. And Obafemi put up a, a tweet at the time saying interesting, and it wasn't very cryptic. I kind of think we all knew that he was pretty pissed off to not to not make it. But Kenny has been open enough about like expressing doubt about his ability to play as, as a lone striker. Um, often played in a pair when he was playing games for Southampton. The formation then they were playing with Swansea at the weekend was a 3-4-2-1, which isn't... Uh, you, could copy, you could almost copy and paste that into Ireland and still have the best of this Ireland team uh, coming out on it. So um, this could be a situation where, with Adam Ida out, could we have Mike Lobafene leading the line in these friendlies against Belgium and Lithuania? Well, let's see him anyway. I think so. You know? Um, like a, a couple of other bits, like from the weekend, obviously Will Keane scoring again. He's going to get promoted and... Um, hopefully playing in the championship next year if he's able to I think he's got 17 goals this season if he's able to replicate half of that in the championship next season he'll become a contender in the short term at least and uh, there was news as well on Andrew Obama Delhi uh, Dean Smith coming out at the weekend he said he went to see he went back to see the specialist and they've put him in a corset at the moment they are a little bit worried about him so I think he will be in that for the next two to three weeks so this is a, a back injury which doesn't look great at the moment he's a lad with lots of potential and he probably is still growing but we have to make sure that his back gets settled we know how dangerous it can be if you get a long term injury in that area so that's a little bit of a concern because we hadn't heard too much from um, the Omabamadeli front over the last little while but uh, that's kind of where things lay after the weekend on, on the Irish one Mike Lobafemi certainly in the green yeah uh, we'll talk about Festi as well. You were in Pride Park on Saturday afternoon and uh, got to see the whole Wayne Rooney experience. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold is our last one in green. We're not going to do that right now. We're going to do that in proper detail a little bit later on with David Myler. But safe to say that uh, you think he's the best right back in the world? Uh, that's what it says on, on the dock. I see that Gabby Van Lahore is um, wondering if Rhys James is actually a better option for England than Trent Alexander-Arnold. So uh, the, the debate around who's the best in the league, who's the best of the country isn't even settled yet. Yeah. But they were both outstanding at the weekend. Rhys James just back from injury. You would have said decision-making was a problem with Gabby Van Lahore throughout his career. <laughs> Gifted with all of the uh, the talents, but never never quite making the right decision. Yeah, no, that, that's that's definitely sh- true. And I, I think Trent is probably just a touch better than Rhys James. Rhys James is very good. Class. Is, is yeah, yeah, he's got 16 assists now as well, Trent, at this point, which is his highest ever tally in a Premier League season. And obviously the goal line clearance as well. Klopp said he wouldn't be in the team if he couldn't defend. So both sides of the ball is, um, is, is something that's been complimented with regards to Trent after Saturday night. That is this week's performance rankings. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. A reminder, OTBAN brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, we're still a very busy show for you. Alan Quinn is going to talk to us about England, minus two laggy and what it means uh, for them to be mid-transition. Uh, we're also going to hear from, as I said, David Myler a little bit later on in the football. Give us your views. The Delhi Alley Derby is on tonight. We'll talk about that too if you want us to. But now... Next is uh, former Irish rugby out half and current Dublin All-Star Hannah Tyrrell. First, here's Tom Condon and Ennis with Ashley O'Reilly talking about Limerick's form. Do you not need to get one to get that momentum for championship or are you still just looking to championship and will concentrate on that? 
Yeah, like, I suppose, look, Limerick are on the road now since 2018, and they, I suppose everyone has just been accustomed to Limerick winning all the games and winning everything, and, and they're just not used to seeing this Limerick team like win or lose three games in a row. But, look, again, I'm saying... I wouldn't be panicking or worrying if I was a Limerick uh, supporter or whatever, like because it's it's a long year and I suppose look they're just used to winning the whole time. But look, John has his sights and they they have targets to be hitting and stuff. And look, I know the results aren't the way they w- most people want it to be, but them boys out there know themselves where they want and w- where they are at their stage of fitness and stuff like that. So like this is they have targets that they're aiming for, and look, I won't be worrying at this stage. OTB. Uh, it's seven minutes past eight this morning here on OTBAM. You'll have heard former Limerick star Tom Condon there with Ashling O'Reilly in Cusick Park in Ennis at, uh, before the outbreak there. Clare and Limerick drew yesterday in the National Hurling League. You'll catch all of our GA reaction from the weekend in the OTB GA podcast feed. The Hurling Pod is coming your way later on today with James Scahill and Paul Murphy. And episode seven of season two of the Football Pod will be available at 6am on Tuesday morning. Now, I'm delighted to say Hannah Tyrrell is with us this morning to look back on a pretty amazing weekend uh, in the uh, Women's National League. Hannah, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning. Yeah, all good. All good. So, uh, nerves of steel there standing over the last ball with full knowledge that this is the last kick of the game. A proper last kick of the game too because time is up. Uh, what's going through your head when you're thinking, well, this is going to be either a moment of glory or, you know, kind <laughs> of uh, a lot riding on this? Uh, yeah, look, um, I suppose I'm the free taker for the team so I do know that, you know, dead ball situations are are key for for any team and that that one in, in particular was was an important one to win the game but I suppose I'm just going through the same motions and routine that I do for for every free that I take you know was in the back of my mind that this could win the game and I had missed the free before so so that there was that but um you know, luckily for me, it went over the bar and it was a nice win to get. So the whole stick to the process thing is true, but at the same time, the human mind is not really as easily fooled into, oh, I'm in the back garden here. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm a kid again, carefree in the back garden. You're not really. It's like uh, up against the All-Ireland champions who stole your crown and there's massive crowds, brilliant atmosphere. So what what do you do to keep that at bay? So it's it's in the back of your mind and how do you make it not be in the forefront of your mind screaming as you're standing over it? Yeah, look, I don't have any, like, you know, vis- visualisations and pretend that I'm in a back garden, to be honest. It's just, you know, clearing my head, a couple of deep breaths and, as I said, going through the motions, the routine and making sure that I could get a good strike off. I do visualise it going over the bar, um, but that's, I suppose you know that's all free takers are under that kind of pressure anytime they step up and it's whether you can deal with that or not and, and thankfully on the day I was able to Pretty um, pretty low key celebration immediately afterwards like at least on the field I presume you were pretty happy though really Well like look at the end of the day we knew coming into this both teams were already through to the semi-final and obviously we knew it was going to be a big game and you know, be great for the neutrals and everything else. And I hope it was a good game to watch. You know, it felt like a good, a good game to play, even if it was nerve-wracking at times. But, yeah, well, look, it was nice to get the win. But we were definitely all about performance, particularly after we feel like we didn't perform in the All-Ireland final. You know, and to some extent, we got that. We're still unhappy with a lot of things there. But that's what the National League is for. You know, we're playing a lot of young and experienced players and they're getting um, a lot of valuable game time and, and hopefully, you know, coming into championship, we're going to see Mead a good few times more this year. So it, it's the more we play them, the better it's going to be. And obviously it's great for the game. 
it, that that was the last part for me on this. It is great for the game to have a rivalry where you know it is two traditional uh, counties who have had great rivalries back over the decades. Now for this to be established, where it's going to be nip and tuck every time you play them, and they have some absolutely sensational ballers when it comes down to it. So there is plenty for the neutral to get stuck into and plenty for the fans of both teams to get stuck into. And that's why there was 5,000 people at a league game yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the more uh, teams we have that are playing at a a high level and that can make games really exciting, the better it is for the game, the better it is for the development of ladies football. um, And it's more competitive for this year. I think for the first year in a good few years, we're going to actually have a, a Leinster Championship because we have a couple of teams in it. And it should be a really good couple of games of football where we get, um, you know, a nice start into Leinster Championship that sets us up for the All-Ireland Series. And, like, that's all we can ask for is playing really good competitive games, which makes us better as players, whether we win or learn or win or lose. <laughs> I, I presume you're not uh, thinking that in the middle of the game. I presume you just rather me were terrible in the middle of the game. I <laughs> <laughs> will look. Um, no, I, I like the challenge. I, I think uh, it's much more satisfying to win a game that's quite tight and that where the opponents are excellent rather than routing a team by 40 or 50 points. Like we learn nothing from that. We don't get a lot out of that. And, you know, it's never nice on other teams. So to actually have teams that are really competitive and and making the the whole game um, a really good showcase of football is great. Now, granted, I I don't like it being as tight, tight as it was the weekend, but you do like a good game where there is a good competitive edge. It kind of feels like football is in a position at the moment where that is going to be the case in a lot of the deciding games. Obviously, yourselves and Cork and Mayo have had a had a great sort of rivalry over the, the last 10 to 15 years even. And now the emergence of Mead, the emergence of Armagh has really taken the sport to a different level. And as you say, I think everybody's kind of driving each other on. Yeah, look, I think it's been the most competitive it's ever been. And, um, you know, Donegal are always up there. Galway the last few years had been... Um, you know, they reached an All-Ireland final a couple of years ago. And as you say, Cork are always there, thereabouts. Armagh have the Mackin sisters who have been playing very well. So I do think that ladies football is in a good place. It's extremely competitive. And, and come senior championship later on in the year, you know, there's going to be some cracking games played. Um, you know, and hopefully we get good crowds with that good atmosphere. And the more uh, televised and streamed that these fixtures are, the more people will realise the skill and talent that we have across ladies football. The motion at Congress, um, the LGFA Congress, was at the weekend. It was obviously passed previously at the GA Congress. Camogie have said in the past that they're very much in favour of the merger. What's your take as a player? Will it have an impact? Is it something that you, is, is actually being spoken about at training at all? How, how much on your radar is this and what do you think of what's going on at the moment? Yeah, look, it's spoken at, at bits and pieces. You know, obviously they had the, the vote at the weekend and it, it passed. So you, you kind of, it is in the back of your mind and you're you're talking about it here and there but like I think it's it's great for the game you know if you look at the ladies game over the last number of years the LGFA have done great work to try and expand that the numbers in at the All-Ireland Final obviously barring COVID have been increasing exponentially um, and they've put in so much work in that and to have that integration and um, it, it just can help push on ladies football even more and uh, bring a bit of parity and just make things a little bit easier for a lot of um, ladies teams across the country and that's kind of all most people are asking for is a little bit of parity um, and go from there. Uh, the other thing I was just interested in your taking on um, 
Thursday, Anthony Eddy resigned. On Friday, the report came out into the women's rugby team. You obviously had stepped away before the end of the World Cup campaign uh, was finished. And so you're kind of very familiar with the characters involved and the storylines. And, and I'm sure I'm still in touch with many of your, your former teammates. So the RFU apologised, essentially, found an extra million a year to give to the women's game are going to appoint somebody who's directly in charge of it, said it was nothing to do with Anthony Eddy and didn't put David Nusifora forward as part of the group who were actually answering questions about it. It was the new chief executive who had been around. He'd been the the um, COO for the entire time that this whole thing happened. So I don't know how much of a new face or a new broom it really was, but certainly that's, that's the impression that they're, they're given. Um, and several of your former teammates issued a statement saying that they were happy to move on and draw a line under it. What was your what was your kind of now with a little bit of distance from the whole thing? What was your read on that? Yeah, look, I'm a I'm a, a long while out of it now, I suppose, um, or a year or so. It feels like a lifetime anyway. But um, I think it's a really positive step forward uh, for the RFU. I think just even with the change of of management and with Greg McWilliams coming in and a, a very much new look squad and um, with a lot of uncapped players coming in. I think it's a really good time to start building on that change. And I do think there was change needed within the IRFU. And it's great to see those recommendations. It'll be interesting to see where that million goes and how that helps us. And um, because, you know, the Six Nations coming up has huge significance at the minute. We're the only team not in the World Cup um, or this summer or this autumn, I think it is. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of significance on that to win the three home games and, It'll be interesting to see how kind of this is all laid out and planned out. But I do think there was a need for change within the RFU and hopefully they can um, follow through with these recommendations. And and we see Irish rugby or Irish women's rugby get to a better place because the last few years had been quite difficult, um, particularly results wise in some cases. And so I, I fully agree. We need to draw a line in the sand there, start building towards the next World Cup and just you know, hopefully see a huge development in players. When you look back now, do you feel like the off-field stuff, um, which clearly hadn't been organised properly, you know, you think of the the uh, changing in the car park for the Interpros, like that's kind of just emblematic of, it seems, the level of care and attention that the women's game was being given. Did any of that actually have a bearing in your decision to step away? Because you're obviously still playing at a very high level in another sport and we're fairly able to seamlessly use that athleticism and skill set uh, in women's Gaelic football. In retrospect, while there may have been other factors, was that actually there as well? No, genuinely not. Um, for me, like obviously physically, it wasn't a decision that my body was giving up on me that I needed to retire or anything like that. It was purely the amount of time um, and commitment that was needed um, to be able to continue in that program. Like, so I had always planned, regardless of where my body was at and how well I was playing, that I was going to retire after the 2021 World Cup had we made it there. And um, when that got delayed out by a year, I just, you know, it was 18 months away at that point and we hadn't qualified. And trying to get time off work for numerous camps and upcoming Six Nations and tournaments and everything else was very, very stressful for me. Um, you know, and outside of that, just commitments, you're in camp all weekend, every weekend, um, you know, and you miss out on a lot of things. And it just came a point where I couldn't do that for another 18 months. I had a lot of plans um, that I wanted to do. And 
I wouldn't be able to do that if I knew I was committed to a program for 18 months. And once I couldn't commit for, you know, 100% of the time, I knew I it wasn't fair on the girls to go back to that spot, you know. And look, either way, little did I know that we wouldn't have qualified for the World Cup anyway and that I would have just retired that August after that Italy tournament. Um, but, you know, obviously I didn't know that at the time. Um, so it, it was... It was hard to watch as a player retired, um, but as I said, it's done and dusted. Just we move on, we build. Hopefully, we get some good players in. We have a lot of really good young players there, and I do think there's opportunities there for us to, to really improve. And that's a really key point, even just the, the, the practical nature of having to get time off work in order to be able to play for your country. That, that really feels like one of those things that does need to be ironed out over a period of time, whether it's a move towards professionalism down the line that will take this thing to the next level because that, that is just a huge barrier. I mean, you, you can't just quit your job, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and it, it's a really tricky one because I do know the players obviously love their jobs and they love playing rugby and they hate having to make decisions at times. Like, But, you know, particularly I, I was lucky. I'm from Dublin and travelling from Dublin to Dublin um, and I still, you know, needed half days on Fridays to get to camp. So if you're thinking of girls that are coming up from the country they need to come up on a Thursday night if not a Friday morning and taking the whole day off work you know and there's there's no time for rest and recovery because you're straight back into work Monday morning and and then obviously you come to match weekends and you're traveling and you need even more time off and like there's an eight-week period there for the Six Nations where nearly every week of that you need Wednesday Thursday Friday off work and then the Monday morning you're going in absolutely shattered and you're not very productive anyway so it, it is a tricky one but the professionalism side thinks, yes, it would be great to go down, but it, it's not as easy as it looks. You know, girls have decent jobs that are decent uh, paid jobs. And, you know, could we match that if we went professional, and um, you know, to incentivize them to come in <laughs> and join the professional setup? Uh, maybe they've managed to find a million quid when they needed to uh, last <laughs> week, uh, you know. It's always interesting when these problems arise that you throw money at them, and that might actually help make the problem go away. So, Hannah, listen, congratulations on the the buzzer beater at the weekend. It was um, great scenes, and uh, we'll talk to you again over the course of the season. But best of luck with everything. Cheers. Thanks very much, guys. See ya. That's uh, Hannah Terrell. We're letting her get back to work. Uh, if um, you want to get in touch this morning, oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number, or of course you can uh, get in touch with us. Um, on the YouTube stream youtube.com forward slash off the ball if you turn on subscriptions uh, if you subscribe to sorry if you turn on notifications and subscribe to our YouTube channel then anytime we go live we'll ping you a little note about that um, we can park the rugby for now because it obviously had a good airing on Friday but um, the merger is going to be something very interesting to see how it works out because everybody says they want it to happen now and now it just has to happen that bit there where it's like we all want this to happen but what's next that's a challenge. This is the tricky bit coming up. Well, maybe maybe the connection with the rugby and the connection with the situation with hurling is money fixes everything. Like, here's our budget. This is what you're going to have. It's going to be an increase in your budget because we're going to all make more money from this organisation. How does that sound? Yeah. Okay, that's not enough. What do you need? You'd like to think that that will be... Like, I mean, is there going to be a consulting, consulting done with the other sporting bodies in Ireland? Not so much in terms of getting advice, but getting experienced of experiences of some of the nightmares that have been encountered by either players 
in the football team or with the rugby team and how to not let that thing happen when this organisation becomes one when this potentially new organisation develops out of, out of Croke Park over the next few years so that probably wouldn't be a bad first step right now to, to try and actually have conversations with those sporting bodies as to how uh, the new GAA doesn't immediately encounter some some bad things that the, that the other organisations have done over the last little while because the opportunities here are massive and there are obviously there have been some people who, who don't think this merger uh, was the right idea or have been cautious uh, to, to, to go forward with this merger so hearing those people out may actually be a good thing as well in the long run and what is the, the real concern for, for Yeah um, but the organisation has to be held to account that it has to be genuinely mm. equal it can't just be okay we're, we're bringing you in here because it's actually been too much it's been too weird when our sponsors keep coming in and going why aren't, why aren't you what, why don't you have and it's too weird when the government keeps coming in why aren't you hitting your targets you're supposed to have a set number of males and females it's not that hard lads well actually it is pretty hard because they're separate organisations not good enough like not good enough so the organisation has to be held to account for uh, making sure that it is genuinely at local level and at national level equal mm. yeah you know when when the good pitch is being kept for the under-14 lads, that has to be called out and reported on and gone, well, that's not, you're not getting your money this year then. Tough. Sorry, but that's not, that is not allowed. And, and that's the sort of thing that you probably need to encounter um, pretty quickly because, as I say, there are other sports in this country who have gone through a, a similar period. Obviously, when it comes to the GEA, it's just a, a, a far more vast organisation than the FAI or the IRFU is. Like when, when, you, when you think about all the, the, the clubs around the country who are suddenly going to be in a, in, in, a, in a new place. I know, in fairness, clubs have probably been ahead of counties on this for a while. There's been a lot of clubs that have been under the one banner unofficially uh, for, for a while now at this point, whereas uh, some of the counties possibly wouldn't have been. So maybe there's actually uh, a lot of things that have already been ironed out and a lot of experience that's already been gained on that front but that is going to be the big thing it's where where are players at with regards to access to facilities at the end of say the, the first two or three years because that that is the the most obvious way that there's been a disconnection in the sport yeah 8.24 this morning your views be welcome on the YouTube stream or at Off The Ball AM on Twitter OTB were back at the Etihad yesterday for our first in-stadium Premier League game in two years Nathan and Brian Kerr brought you live commentary of Manchester City for Manchester United 1 here's Brian Kerr talking about the state of things at Manchester United it's all desperation stuff. Goalkeeper, you think De Gea made a lot of very, very good saves because he had to. Edison didn't have to. Manchester United a long way short of what's required. They've sent, spent £1.1 billion pounds on players since Alex, Alex's departure. They say, where's the value in what they have? If they were to put them all up for sale at the end of this season who'll be buying them and much would they, how much would they get what return would they get on that investment of 1.1 million won't get much back for, for Pogville would probably walk away for nothing at the end of the season but the rest of them there wouldn't be many great takers you might get some of the Italian clubs taking them hoping to snatch some of them maybe some of the French clubs for 5 million 10 million that sort of mark but not the sort of money they paid for them when they bought them and uh, they're, you know, they're in a bit of a mess at the moment. It's all the talks about the manager and the new manager. What new manager will they get if they don't? They're not going to finish. Looks like we struggle to finish the top four. I can't see him making it on the performance today. Not just today's performances, performances overall. Went into the match four wins, four draws before today say well unbeaten and eight in the league yeah but the four draws cost you eight points it's it's not enough it's not good enough and today they met a, a class team and they were substandard and way off it just about hanging in in the match Manchester City though 
take the glory today and deservedly so Bernardo Silva Foden De Bruyne that little trio towards the centre forward position without any of them being in the centre forward position were just outstanding Bruno Fernandes is, is back to what I said about murder in the season too much hands in the air blaming other people blaming the referee he tried like he chased in the first 20 minutes trying to close down from the centre forward position but probably it was half hearted there wasn't the support to it it wasn't you know concerted and concentrated it wasn't organised and disciplined enough to be effective it went on for a while and then City began to play through it but no there's no you know they were short for on today would he made a difference maybe slightly I doubt enough but might have played with the three centre halves and five at the back had he been fit they were now Ronaldo would that make much difference I don't think so Ronaldo wouldn't have, would have hardly had a kick of the ball today because they needed players with energy to get around the pitch and he wasn't going to contribute to that Cavani might have made a bit of a difference had he played he gives you a focal point and he runs around and he chases but overall you know you're talking about 35 and 37 year old making the difference and Varane he's not, he's not getting younger he's still quite young enough to make a real contribution at this level but the, but they're overall they're, they're, they're way off it but the, you know today we talk should be talking about the brilliance of Manchester City that's the thing it, we should be talking about the brilliance of Manchester City but we just can't turn away from the car crash the giant fleshy car crash of Manchester United at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's just such a it's, it's a sensational enough story to be honest the Manchester United side of things and Manchester City have, have hit these levels in the past and and I guess we know what Manchester City can do. Uh, at the same time, I guess, is, is it harder to find new words to describe how bad Manchester United are or is it harder to find new words to describe how good Manchester City are? Probably harder to describe Manchester United at this point considering everything that's been written and said about them over well, the last few months. Uh, Jack Grealish was pretty good yesterday. Everybody's like, well, oh, Grealish is a flop. He's terrible. He's rubbish. Mm. That was a waste of money. He's no good. He's just a party boy. It's crazy. Actually, pretty good at football. Yeah, and like, I mean, there, there have been cases of players who... Uh, have not been uh, amazing in their first season and get better over a period of time. That tends to happen sometimes. Riyad Mahrez took a good while to settle into the level that he's at now, which is absolutely stunning. And the crazy thing about it is that there's no sense that he's like a, even a guaranteed starter. Like even when it comes to uh, yeah. obviously Champions League finals in the morning, Mahrez starts. But like in, next week in the Premier League, uh, he may not do so. Like there is still an uncertainty around who Pep actually picks in that front three. Which oh, just I don't know. Yeah, no, Grealish isn't a guaranteed starter. Mahrez isn't a guaranteed starter either. Like not at all. I, uh, Sterling's form so recently has been excellent. Yes. Yeah. Again, there's just a there's just a little. His finishing isn't as good, it seems, as the rest. But he gets more chances. So, what do you do? do you stick him in the team because he guaranteed to get three or four goal chances. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's going to be interesting to see what what sort of galaxy brain move Pep goes for in in their defining Champions League. Plays none of them. Plays none of them. It goes with like Bernardo Silva, De Bruyne, Fernandinho, and Rodri up front, yeah. something like that. Bring yeah, bring Fernandinho out of. Uh, off the bench, I, like I, I, I think that they're obviously so good that there is a margin of error in a lot of these games that uh, allows them to either drop their intensity a little bit or to maybe make bad decisions on the sideline and, and still roll over teams. That's not to say that, that uh, Pep uh, gets it wrong frequently at all. He's just sometimes maybe overthought it in in really significant Champions League moments. But I think at this point, it's the, the li- it seems likely almost that they will do 
the double Premier League and Champions League double that I, the, maybe a stretch calling it likely but I, I do think that that's what's going to happen if I had to predict both of these competitions at the moment and City as well are just finding their stride at, at a perfect time it feels it's like that they, they, they obviously were excellent up until a couple of weeks ago as well uh, but it feels that yesterday might actually be a staging post for them where they kick on to a whole other level again after that and get back to maybe hammering teams we don't know but but it definitely feels that yesterday was like okay it's time for the serious part of the season now lads yeah um, so the continuous referendum on whether or not uh, Pochettino is good enough to be the Man United manager right do you know are you, are you, are you aware of what happened at the weekend uh, with with Paris Saint-Germain yeah uh, I'm actually not. Okay, so it, but that most people aren't right, yeah. except that he I didn't he, check the PSG score. He now can't get the job because they were beaten by Nice, right? Okay, I see. And uh, top of the table clash, it was called. It was referred to as a top yeah. of the table clash, and so oof, I'm like, oh Jesus, this is a disaster. Maybe they're not going to win the league. How many points clear are they after being beaten by the team in second? Unless I'm looking at the table wrong. Unless I keep looking at the wrong table, which must be the case. How many points clear of Nice in second are they? I, I don't know. I didn't check the table this points morning. clear 13, right, okay. of the team. Like, I wish I checked it now. Oh, oh, that's it. Nice beat him. He can't get the job. Nice beat him. Why, why do you think that is? Why, like, why, why do you think that there is that rush to, to not... Why, why do you think people are looking for reasons to not give Posh the job? I think... Um, exceptionalism about our league being the only league that's important. And so therefore, unless you win that league by 100 points, unless you win every single game which no team has ever done in the history of any league ever, as far as I'm aware, except maybe North Korea. Like, uh, the, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't understand it. But uh, did he not do okay in the period? Like, I mean, the, he is uh, one of their own. Uh, he, he is somebody who came through and made his reputation in the Premier League. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. English people should be quite, uh, can take some sort of credit for, for Pochettino being uh being a relatively high-profile manager, like if you're using that as the reason to not appoint him, and all of a sudden Ten Hag gets in, uh, even with that exceptionalism existing, that doesn't make sense either. So I, I don't know what the re- but also who's saying this? Like I mean, who who I I, I think that most people, if if Pacino was appointed in the morning, would say, listen, in terms of managers that you could go out and get, I think that's a pretty good a uh, pretty good appointment. The the real question is whether or not they they missed a trick on Conte a few months ago and. Like I guess trying to. Re- I mean, certainly as an interim manager, because that's all he ever is. Yeah, he's all, only ever an interim manager. You just don't have to give him the title interim manager. You're going to pay him like a normal manager, and he's going to be an interim manager because he's going to be there for 18 months. Yeah. right? but in that period, you might win the league and you might finish sixth. I, I'd also like to be a fly on the wall for like a, a sort of alternate reality where Antonio Conte is manager and Raniak is his director of football. Like that seems like a relationship that just would not work they seem very very different but maybe not maybe like it's those different personalities that challenge each other and allow each other to be challenged and and, and would drive a club forward maybe everybody within the club has been um, has been too happy and had it too easily uh, over, over the last few years at, at boardroom level in particular and that's why you still have people like uh, Richard Arnold coming out saying that we're we're ready to to win now and you know everything is good because maybe they actually believe that it, things are fine and they haven't been challenged enough. Well, it's such a weird scenario. It's such a weird club, isn't it? That like everything is actually being run really well. They are making loads of money. Okay, they're half a billion in debt. It's this bizarre kind of. They're making loads of money. They're servicing the debt. They're investing lots in the playing stock. This whole notion that they haven't invested has been obviously blown out of the water. So, if you just get somebody in who'll spend the money properly, you could turn it round. There's no sign that they know what they're doing when it comes to that side of it. Mm. And that's that's been the real issue. Like, uh, and 
I mean, it, it's of course the magnitude of spending has been large over the last little while, but they still come away from every window feeling as if they've missed out on a couple of players. And last summer, it was the case of the central midfielder. I think the, the McFred issue had been an issue for a long, long time. And last summer, that was priority number one. In fairness, the second priority was the centre-back, and they did go out and get Varane. Uh, but there was still no movement towards getting that centre-back and or getting that central midfielder. And it feels almost, even despite Varane's arrival, the centre-back problems are greater. <laughs> yeah, but the Varane, the red flags around Varane was his in- unavailability like where was he yesterday uh, Brian Kerr said maybe they could have gone through at the back they might have been able to thwart Manchester City it's possible it's possible but they wouldn't have, they no, wouldn't but, have got anything out of the game no but the, the money that they invested in Cristiano who was unavailable because they didn't really want him and then had a hip flexor issue and then wasn't in the country uh, and then also Varane it's like what? so you improved your squad very well okay okay Santo did play did, did start and had an impact but also, like with regards to yesterday, there, there, were, there was a lot of, I guess, compliments towards Manchester United after the first half an hour of football. Like, were things being overstated a little bit? Like the the, the Sancho goal was was excellent. Like, I mean, a really good finish. But I think Manchester City would have been a little bit disappointed with that to concede from that range. Yes, Manchester United got out of their half a couple of times for a little bit of a heart flutter for Manchester City. But like that's what you'd expect from Everton, like they did last week, not from not from Manchester United. And like I know that this whole notion of what Manchester United are has been blown out of the water recently. They are not what they once were, and it's and it's nonsense if you think that they should be good because they are Manchester United. But they have spent a lot of money on very good players, and they did have some very good players on the pitch yesterday. Players that should be better than you know the, the moral victory of what the first half was, which was being level at one all for a few minutes. The criticism of the signing of Ranić and the appointment of Ranić has been swift and brutal. It has now like it's now being seen as a joke, a joke, a joke shop appointment because of his track record as a manager. What do you think of this? Well, I do think that it's going to be a different job that he goes into after this. But I think that putting him in as manager beforehand, it just it does it will destroy his credibility on some level. I'm not saying that that it will within the club, but at some level, people outside of Manchester United or even uh, above his head would be like, "This guy wasn't a very good manager." But he wasn't supposed to be a manager, though. That's the thing. That's, that's exactly it. So, what, why would you appoint somebody in a job that they are not that is not their best role unless, to start things off? Unless. Unless there is actually like a long term, okay, you're going to come in and you're going to have day to day knowledge of this current squad to see if any of them are going to be applicable to our. So if if Ten Hag comes in and Ranić is the de facto director of football, is that a partnership that you could see making sense? Because the the before the game, Ranić was talking about the transfer policy. It's and he was being asked about Salzburg and Leipzig where obviously he was um, involved in setting up how they sign and approach the transfer market. It's a question of continuity and consistency, knowing exactly how I want to play as a club and as a manager, of having a clear transfer strategy and signing players who fit into that system. That's what both clubs have been doing in the last five or six years. You'd say both clubs have got a reputation globally as uh, progressive talent spotters who are buying players who it turns fit into most teams in world football because that's the direction the football has gone if I look at their transfer policy and their transfer success they haven't had many players who after one or two years people would say maybe that isn't the right signing both clubs have been pretty successful this is where Manchester United have to go again under Alex Ferguson they were there but since then there have been quite a few different managers and to close the gap to those two clubs you have to make sure that the recruitment is right you have to be quick enough in the transfer market knowing the market and signing the right players in the right moment essentially saying Manchester United are behind Leipzig and Salzburg when it comes to the transfer market which is hard to argue with 
Yeah, and like I mean, it, it's it's impossible to argue with. Uh, and with, with smaller budgets, they've um, they, they've got outdone in the market where it does feel that there is a lot of last minute decision making or certainly like arriving at the transfer window and then deciding what they're going to do rather than forward planning and future proofing and that that doesn't necessarily mean going down the Arsenal route of like signing a load of young players it can mean you know just knowing when a player is going to be potentially at his peak or past his peak and knowing that you need to sign a person in that position in whatever two three windows time that that's all it involves and that player could be at his peak when you sign him because you're this is where the whole reputation comes in and the club comes in you are Manchester United you do have a lot of money to spend you are a commercially successful club go out and sign the player that you need but it seems that they don't even know what they need they don't even know what they want and every time they think they do they're wrong and uh, that is the situation that they find themselves in Alright, Carl Milani is with us Carl, good morning to you how are you? Morning lads uh, Rory McElroy had an interesting weekend where he was absolutely sensational on Thursday but not so good on Sunday Yeah, it's bizarre um, the conditions changed quite significantly at Bayhill I think over the weekend and a lot of the players struggled I think the average score yesterday final round was somewhere around 75.5 uh, McElroy had a 76, McDowell had a 76 as well, but the conditions just totally changed from Thursday. And I suppose McElroy spoke on Thursday about how good he felt about his game and everything was in good order and he felt he was back to his best. And he did look really, really good. I mean, his swing was so free flowing and he was uh, 65, you know, everything was, was perfect, but things changed significantly. I think 72, 76, 76 for the final three rounds, tie for 13th, uh, disappointing. What does he take from the week? Well, he knows that he has it there in his locker, but the conditions uh, just changed in terms of the golf course got very, very firm. So d- does, does this mean it's just a lottery and we shouldn't tie this performance to other McElroy performances before mm. where the bad weather rolls in and what happens afterwards has less to do with talent and it just it, it's, it's a fluke? Really? Mm, yeah, it's probably a fluke, but it's also a management of the conditions. So, for example, yesterday, I think McElroy snapped a club at one stage. Uh, definitely frustration is creeping into his game in the last couple of years uh, with frustration of it. Is it a fluke? I'm not so sure. I think game management, course management becomes so important on a day like that in terms of just getting the ball on the green in regulation, uh, getting down, making your pars, because you're not going to go back to field if you're shooting level par in a day like yesterday at Bayhill. And there's nothing to say that when the major championships come around, I mean, the weather can be very, very bad, obviously, and for the Open Championship in the summertime, uh, the US Open yesterday was referred to as possibly a US Open-style course in terms yeah. of the greens been so firm and very, very little margin for error. Uh, but McElroy's form has been reasonably good at the US Open in recent years, and obviously he won it back in, in 2011. But for him, I think the fact that he played so well on Thursday shows that there are green shoots there. It's just, look, it's, it's the cliche of trying to get it for four days rather than one. OK. Do we see anything to suggest that this is not... Because I, look, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm uh, grasping the straws and I'm trying to find uh, it's not it's not Rory, it's the course. But like you're looking at the leaderboard and it's loads of um, top quality golfers who yeah. just manage their way around it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, and this has been the analysis over the years since McElroy turned professional, is that Augusta suits his game. Uh, his traditional high draw that he would have started off with when he. Uh, came into the pro ranks from the amateur circuit is ideally suited to Augusta. Also, Augusta being earlier in the year uh, is a little bit softer than the courses would be for the major championships later on in the calendar year. So all of that should feed into McElroy with a high ball flight. Um, his his short game may be a little bit suspect at times in terms of the greens and stuff. And that was part of it at Bayhill yesterday in terms of being in the right areas on the greens because there were no gimmies. Uh, the greens were so glassy and firm that balls were running past the hole two and a half three feet there were no gimmies uh, so just I think that relentless mental pressure as well of trying to get down 
and uh, making sure that your focus on every shot was key yesterday as well. But I think I think there are green shoots. I think um, given the performance on Thursday and how how free flowing he looked, and we've spoken before about how he just needs to play the game rather than focus on the minutiae and just go out and play a little bit more carefree uh, to the to as as far as he can. Obviously, uh, might serve him a little bit better down the road. Do, do we think he's getting angrier? Like is it, like there's a, any doubt? Yeah, yeah. They, like he could like um, contribute to like a Rory McIlroy museum of broken items at this point, like between a shirt and a golf club. Yeah, uh, like I, I know that when he did, did interview Paul Kimmage a couple of years ago, he, he was talking about the, the, the stoicism that he was practicing and all that. Like, I wonder has has he kind of wound himself up to this point where he's like this stuff just isn't working. Yeah, Come on, like but he has to be because he's definitely the most probably the most talented player in the world mm. on his day. And it clearly isn't coming off from him right now. But when he is good, I mean, there's no one, I don't think there's anyone that can beat him when he's on his, on his game. On a golf course that suits him, I don't think there's anybody that can beat him. But there, there's no doubt frustration is getting the better of him at some stages and probably just needs to control that a little bit better. But it's great to see that passion as well at the same time uh, from McElroy. And look, at, I mean, as I say, I think there were enough green shoots to make it a, a positive week for him this week. All right, what else going on? Well, uh, you've been discussing the action in the Premier League yesterday. Just to recap on the results, uh, Manchester City 4-1 winners against Manchester United. Roy Keane saying that some of the current squad should never play for the club again following that derby defeat in the Premier League. Arsenal in fourth day were 3-2 winners over Watford at Vicarage Road. Everton will attempt to move themselves further away from the Premier League's relegation zone tonight. They're in 17th ahead of their meeting with Spurs. That game kicks off at 8 o'clock this evening. Also one game in the FA Cup, the final fifth round fixture. The game tonight between Nottingham Forest and Huddersfield the winner will play Liverpool in the last day kick off for that game is at half seven busy weekend of action in the Allianz Hurling League Limerick's wait for a first win continues 18 points apiece draw with Clare yesterday in Division 1A on the other side in 1B Waterford in very good form they beat Tipperary by 128 to 21 points and a big result for Leash at the other end of the table they beat Antrim by 120 to 119 Galway star Siobhan McGrath scored 1-7 for Sarsfields they claimed the All-Ireland Club Senior Camogie title yesterday 3-12 to 4-5 winners over Ulla of Wexford St. Rhinos have awfully won the intermediate title. They beat Salt Hill Nakara of Galway. In the Little Ladies National Football League, the Division 1 semi-final pairings confirmed. Mayo will play Meath. Mayo beat Donegal by 2-7 to 1-7. Dublin and Donegal meet on the other side of the draw and the relegation playoff will involve Waterford and Westmead. They were beaten yesterday by uh, Cork and Galway in their respective losses. We've mentioned the golf Scotty Scheffler won the Arnold Palmer Invitational. He finished on five under par. One stroke win for him. That's his second win in three starts, by the way, on the PGA Tour. Rory McIlroy and Graham McDowell, as mentioned, finished in a tie for 13th on one over par. A disappointment for two Ireland Darts players last night. Keane Barry and Willie O'Connor both losing out in the semi-finals of the UK Open. Barry lost his semi-final clash to Michael Smith, while Danny Noppert had an 11-9 win over O'Connor. Joe Perry won Snooker's Welsh Open title last night. He beat uh, Judd Trump by nine frames to five. And there's horse racing later today at Leopardstown where the first is off at 25 past one. All right, Carl, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. This is Carl Milani. You can read more from him on otbsports.com. Now, a reminder, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. At 8.45, let's turn our attention to the weekend's football. I'm delighted to say David Myler is back with us. David, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Good morning, gents. Uh, Let's start with Manchester United, okay? Because that's what everybody's talking about at the moment. Um, is this as bad as it can get, or actually, is there still room for this to be much worse? What, what's your take? It's very bad, um, but it can obviously it can it can get worse. Um, I think yes, this second half performance was one of the worst performances, certainly from this group of players I've seen in a long time. 
Um, for 45 minutes, they kind of huffed and puffed and they tried they tried to high-press them. They went after them. You know, they looked at the odd occasion that they could counter-attack, but then the back four were all over the place. Um, Lindelof, Maguire, mistakes, Wambasaka, like everything came down the left side. Um, they got cleaned out. Can it get worse? Of course it can get worse because, you know, they could end up getting beaten by, you know, the teams down the bottom end of the table where they're getting comfortable, they're getting beat at Old Trafford and that. Um, but it's, it's where do United go from here? Um, like what is the solution? Um, you know, you, you look at the appoint Ragnick, who's obviously going up, up into the board after his, you know, tenure as manager. Um, he even mentioned he could have recommended himself. Like, there's no chance him, of him becoming manager. It just seems that the players don't seem to respect him. Um, his philosophy, his ideas, it's not working. Um, the whole story with Ronaldo before the game, who knows what's true, what's not true. Um, it just seems, it's just a complete and utter mess. You're a Liverpool fan. You know it can get mm-hmm. much worse. You know that it could be like this for another 10 years. The whole notion that there's a quick fix solution or a, you know, a manager on the shelf who's going to come in and fix this immediately, that's not true. It's a long, long way back for Manchester United from here to even competing for a title, let alone winning it. What do United know? Is it nine or 10 years since they've last won a league title? Like, uh, we, had, we had a debate the other day... Um, Basically, do I think United would go as long as Liverpool waiting for another Premier League title? And certainly the signs would point in that direction. Like their trans- transfer policy over the last few years hasn't been great. Um, like we're all well aware of how much money they've spent to, to try and compete with Liverpool and Manchester City. But it's just time after time they're signing the wrong players. And I think like they do need to hit the reset, reset button. There has to be a long-term project. And going into the summer, they have to get their managerial uh, appointment right. And if they don't just going to be another year of it for United fans where it's just going to be you know dreadful football um, players like that the most damning thing you could say and it's, it's it's as a former player like they gave up yesterday there was no fight there was no character there was no heart you think it is a Manchester derby like, yeah. okay you can you can have poor games where it's not going well but you roll your sleeves up and you work hard and you, you close people down that's that is basic enough stuff Um like, look, we've all misplaced passes. We've all, you know, missed chances, been caught out of position. But you work hard. And yesterday, you know, the third and fourth goals, just a complete and utter lack of effort for them. That's pretty damning. Like, that's not just on Ragnik, that's on the players themselves as well. Yeah, and I, 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 do, feel, I do feel a bit for Ragnik um, because he's come into... He's come into a football club that has incredible history. It's an incredible club. Um, there's no getting away from that. You know, the success that, you know, certainly Sir Alex brought them. Um, you know, they are one of the biggest clubs in the world. He's gone into a complete and utter mess and he's trying to do what, you know, his philosophy of this high press to kind of match your, your inevitably Jurgen Klopp, that he, he, he plays more that way. But the players just haven't reacted. Um, like it's just it's just I don't need you know what you're I don't even know where to start because there just seems to be so many different problems. Um like at one point was Cristiano the problem. You've seen after yesterday Cristiano didn't play, um, but they were still awful. Um so you can't you can't point it like is he is he a problem? Probably yeah, he's one of them. There's about a hundred other things that are wrong as well. It's a situation now where it's kind of ripping it up and starting again in a way that 
even a good managerial appointment won't do much to help. As in, obviously, you want the manager to, to try and get the best out of whatever bunch of players does start next season. But it goes way deeper than that. It is a, a restructuring of an entire squad that is just going to need to be put on ice for a while in terms of its ambition to win a title. But it seems that a lot of Manchester United fans just can't accept that, that they do need to be challenging for a title next season. And almost to the point where that's being replicated within the club, because that's the only way you can explain some of their transfer business over the last little while the sort of constant plastering over some of the cracks no it's definitely they are papering over the cracks um, and that's probably it's probably been one of the downfalls of a club like Manchester United where they've been so successful that they feel every year they have to be challenging um, they just look we all know Manchester United growing up watching the Premier League Man United have always been there knocking on the door to either win it or they're they're never too far out of the top four Um and that's kind of where they're at, that they just keep throwing mom- money at this problem. And, you know, anyone who watches Manchester United knew they were, you know, crying out for a hole in midfielder to kind of really establish their their attack and kind of like make them more solid. But then they, they don't do it. They, of course, look, you looked at the three players they brought in with Sancho, who's actually hit some form under Ragnick. Um, they brought in Rafa Varane and, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. You think they could be three three of the four missing pieces that they do need that they thought, you know what, we can hold out with McTominay and Fred, but like, they're not, they're not good enough for Manchester United. You look at the, the great Manchester United teams that have won Premier League titles going all the way from the start to the last time, you know, they won it. How many of the players in Man United's current level would even get on the bench of those teams? Um, like, of course, look, you're, you're also talking about a 37-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, in his pump, like this, he gets into every team, but the rest of them, they're not at Manchester United's quality. Okay, you could make a case for Bruno, um, De Gea maybe, um, but Bruno even yesterday, just, I don't know what's gone, gone wrong with him. He just looks fed up. Um, for someone who usually is so good at like running games, being involved with assists, goals or whatever, I've never seen him misplay so many passes. Um, yeah, I was... It's, it's, it's a tough time for Manchester United fans. Can I ask you a question, right? So if Pochettino comes in and is given a long-term deal, say a three- or four-year deal, right, do the current players play better? Are they, or are they just not good enough? Like, is, is, it, is, it, is it black and white, right, where they've all had their opportunity, they've all played uh, tens, if not hundreds, of games for Manchester United over the last five or six seasons. We've seen this group of players and what they're capable of under the, those managers is there is it possible that a new manager could come in and turn any of those four fullbacks back into uh, title contending fullbacks like can Pochettino galvanise the team by sheer force of personality and quality of coaching and tactical acumen to go all of a sudden Wambasaka, yeah I can I can have you play 36 38 games and you're going to be totally fine as a right back when Reese James and Trent Alexander-Arnold and whoever else are the ones playing in that position for the teams who are uh, on the verge of winning titles. I definitely think a Pochettino type character can come in. Yes, you can implement your style and players can buy into it and they can improve. Um United at the moment, you look at their back four, like the best example is Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire um, both had fantastic Euros I don't know what's after happening to Luke Shaw, um, Harry like I was on here the other day and I'm, I'm defending him, Harry just is all over the place, he looks shot um, Lindelof um, 
like yesterday, like you, you can cut up the goals whatever way you want. But I looked at Lindelof yesterday when the first one, when you know City attacking on the left hand side, like Wan Bissaka's getting caught over, and then Lindelof goes charging out and, and leaves, you know, the centre to free, and then Harry is caught in no man's land, so he should took a cross. Tele should took a cross, but then the only one that seems to be alert in the box is Kevin De Bruyne, um, and you know the. So if you if you do bring in a new manager, of course they can come in and they they can work with these players and they can make them better. But you're going back a lot of it to very very basic defending that you should learn at a young age, where you talk about you know the discipline, the distances between the back four, you know protecting your areas like fullbacks, even the fullbacks you mentioned there in Reese James and Trent Alexander Arnold, um, like they do a lot more defensively. Of course, they're both fantastic going forward. You know, the, the weakness that Trent has probably is his defending one-on-one, but that has improved significantly. Um, but United's fullbacks aren't defending. They're not stopping crosses. They're getting beaten by their man. Um, it's just, it's a lot of it is very basic stuff. And maybe it is a bit of comfort, you know, being a bit comfortable. Um, they're not getting pushed hard enough. Of course, when you when you sign an interim manager, in the back of their minds, they think, well, he's only here for six months. Um, my contract is longer, I'm fine. Um, but like as Gary Neville said yesterday, he's obviously, whoever he recommends to the board to, to come in and be the next manager, he, that manager is going to come in and, and Ragnick's going to give them a profile of each player and what he thinks is right, what he thinks is wrong. Um, and it's, you know, the, at the moment, their performances are totally unacceptable for a club like Manchester United. It would be funny if Raniak recommended himself now after all this for, for a job. <laughs> he can't. He can't. The, the, um, Fabrizio Romano has uh, been tweeting this morning about Marcus Rashford. He says he's got sources at Manchester United that tell him that he's concerned about his game time and he is considering his future. Now, Rashford's contract expires in the summer of 2023. So Manchester United have a decision to make on Marcus Rashford this summer. Uh, well, I mean, recent yeah. form would suggest that Manchester United don't care and may actually just uh, let him walk. But realistically, if they're uh, a well-run business, they need to cash in on him this summer. So what would you do, David, if, if you were in charge with, with Marcus Rashford at this point? Well, you said there, right, obviously, for Rizzo Romano's tweeting about his sources and whatever he's heard. I could tell you for a fact that Marcus Rashford, like I've met Marcus, but... Marcus, you look at yesterday, they started with Paul Pogba and Bruno as kind of their, you know, leading the line. Like Marcus Rashford is obviously, majority of his time he plays off the left wing, but he has played up front. You, anyone, anyone who watches any bit of football know that he has got to be annoyed. He's got to be pissed off really that he's not starting that. You know, you look at the, of course, Martial's gone alone. We know the Greenwood situation. Ronaldo and Cavani are out. Like they're kind of like, you're, you, they were United's four strikers and then obviously with those four outs like you'd expect Rashford to play through the middle he's got to be fed up um, I don't think the question is about Manchester United I think the question is to Marcus Rashford what do you really want do you want to you know, continue a career at Manchester United are you going to go and perform in training get you know, an opportunity in a game and play well because we've seen over time and time again he has come up um, at significant moments with good goals um, important goals but He's. It seems to me he's almost lost a bit of his hunger. He seems a bit fed up, and I think he needs to do a bit of soul searching and think, well, what do I want? Because he is a very good player, but am I going? Does he see his future at Manchester United, or does he see it elsewhere? And if he does, then you know, once the summer comes, he'll have, he'll he'll have to weigh that up, and I think he will have to, you know, have a good good deep think about what he wants to do. What would you recommend if you were in his camp? If you were 
an agent or a friend of his, would it be, look, you've had your time at Man United, go off and play for Newcastle or Arsenal or whoever is interested and try and become a superstar there again? Or is it actually, you are Manchester United DNA and so you've had a, a been blown off course here, but get back to it. Get back to what you could be and do it here. I, if I was advising him, um, I would certainly say, like, you'd have to sit down and strip it all back and say, well, what's, what's gone wrong? Um, I definitely think, as you said there, he's come through the United Academy. Um, he has that DNA. He should know how the club is. Um, as a young boy, he would have seen, you know, the club lifting Premier League titles. Um, he's played a lot of games at Manchester United. He should know what's expected of a Manchester United player, um, the expectation of the fans. Um, I definitely think he needs he needs to knuckle down. And I think, like, if I were him, I would see myself at Manchester United. Um, but why would he want to go anywhere else? Of course, I, I get it. Somebody would say game time. Um, I imagine he's getting paid a fortune there, so it wouldn't really be up money if you, you know, if you talk about, say, like Newcastle. You, I would see myself as playing with Manchester United for the rest of my career if I were him. That's where you want to be. You want to be a, a, at a club like that. Certainly, when you know you've grown up supporting the club, um, but it's very easy for me to say it here. Um, it's got to come from him. You know, like it's it's crazy. We could go through 15, 16 of those players and ask the same question. Um, like you've got Pogba Lingard out of contract, who are probably both going to move on. Um, like they both played yesterday. It's just. It's crazy, really, what's going on at that club. It is crazy, and it's crazy how badly they've been run considering allowing those players which were assets that they didn't cash in on them, you know, oh, we need to keep we need to keep Lingard around, we need to keep giving them deals and, and paying them more and more and more to the point where we never actually really use them, except then in absolute crisis in the big games, we turn to them and we go, OK, come on. It's like, well, you didn't pick me against... And Jesse, Jesse's probably a prime example of what you're talking about there with Rashford with the Manchester United DNA. He went to West Ham on loan. It was unbelievable. Um, had an incredible time. He he then thought, you know, oh, I'm doing it in the Premier League here. I can come back under Solskjaer and maybe I'll get opportunities. And he did get opportunities, but it's not worked out. Like he like he should have left in January. Um, there was enough clubs sniffing around him. You know, West Ham wanted him back. David Moyes obviously speaks so highly of him. Newcastle were interested. That's your opportunity to go and play, you know, the last 15, 16 games of the Premier League season. And then, you know, try and kick on. And then he can re-establish himself in the England squad or whatever. But kind of there is that attachment too which is like when I, I I mentioned that because I talked about Rashford that you don't want to get caught then in no man's land where you're kind of going nowhere and it's a fair point yeah yeah so maybe know, there is maybe the right thing in certainly in Lingard's case the right thing was just get out just get out and go and do and, and be yourself and like maybe maybe Rashford maybe it's maybe it's too oppressive and we that's the other side of this is like you, you keep getting told that oh there's never been a match day squad without a, a United youth player it's like well so am I just here because they don't want to break that streak or am I here because they actually want me in the squad um, and maybe somebody else can, can take that pressure Let, let's talk about the teams who are playing well at the moment Talk about City in a minute. What did you make of Liverpool's performance? Because, again, we were talking on Friday and I felt like they were going to probably dominate that game and win handily, but it wasn't as easy. It wasn't It wasn't no. actually easy at all for them. No, but look, we just... Obviously, Liverpool are on this magnificent run, sorry. Um, you know, the, the 12 wins and you kind of expect them to win. You expect them to win. Uh, you expect them to dominate, certainly playing at Anfield. West Ham are a very, you know, a very well-organised team who are in, you know... They're battling for top four. Whether or not they'll get it, I don't know. But they're certainly up there. And 
you know, David Moyes has them well organised. You know, they're, they're very difficult to beat. And look, they created um, a lot of chances in Liverpool. Um, you know, Trent having to clear one off the line. Alisson having to come up trumps. On another day, or a better team, like your Man City, they take those opportunities. I've uh, seen that yesterday, even, I know we'll talk about it, but United City, City, City are so ruthless that, you know, West Ham probably lacked that where there was obviously massive talk in the transfer window of them signing a striker to kind of compete with Antonio who can get them the 15 to 20 goals. But at the same time, Liverpool just need to get the job done. Of course, you would like to play better, but I think at this significant part of the season, it's about three points at closing, you know, trying to close that gap on Manchester City and keep them under pressure. Um, but, you know what I mean, they got the job done and that's all that matters. Uh, on the point of uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Jurgen Klopp uh, was coming out afterwards saying that he wouldn't be in the team if he, he couldn't defend it. I know you've, you've touched on it there uh, a moment ago about his uh, ability to defend and you said that his one-on-one defending has got better over the last little while. So so what what are you seeing from, from Trent on, on that front? I guess what we're talking about in the aftermath of Saturday was a goal line clearance and a great assist, but I guess it, it's away from that that, that I want to focus on here, his, his actual one-on-one marking. Yeah, well, it's 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 more it's more in the probably in the transition zone. It's when Liverpool are, you know, we've seen it time and time again. When Liverpool play this high line, that when like with West Ham, for example, when they break, Trent in the past, you know, I think if he, if he was open minded and he looked back at his own performances, games when he's so good going forward that he doesn't necessarily always sprint back or get back as quick as he could, um, and I think that has developed with him because you know. There was a lot of games where a lot of chances came down his side because, of course, on the other side, you've got Virgil, which is obviously um, a colossal defender, so people tend to try and avoid him. But he's just, he, it's more of his defensive work rates. He's getting back quicker. He's getting himself into better positions where, you know, in the past, he was kind of getting there, you know, five, six, seven seconds too late that, you know, the, he's already out of position, but now he's getting back quicker. So then he's solid they're able to then deal with the situation. You've seen that with the goal line clearance. In the past, Trent would have never probably been in that kind of situation. Um, but that's obviously something that he's worked on. Like, there's no doubting his ability going forward. Um, he's the best attacking fullback in the world. Um, you've seen that with his goals and his assists. But certainly he has massively improved going back. What about when it comes to the the Liverpool's line? I mean, this is not a comment on it ever ever changing or not being the right decision, but there was obviously a couple of the opportunities for West Ham on Saturday night, including the one that Trent Alexander-Arnold cleared off the line. Do you think that there's a, a situation coming where they are going to start leaking more goals at the moment or, or was Saturday probably as, as, as bad as it's going to look in, in those sort of isolated moments? Well, you only, have to, you only have to remember back to Aston Villa, the Aston Villa game where Liverpool got hammered. Um, there will come the odd game where they do get, you know, sucker punch and they do get caught, and a team is on it or a forward or wingers are on it, and they're going to, you know, every opportunity they get, they're going to score. Um, that will happen, but at the same time, you know, with the, you, you know, we have always had the Liverpool front three, but it's now like the front five. Um, obviously, if you add Jota Diaz into that mix of the, the previous front three, like there's so much goals there, there's so many opportunities being created. You know, like the other day, okay, Salah didn't have his finest finest game, but then Mane played through the middle. Um, thought he did really well. All he was missing was, you know, a bit more, um, like in terms of goals or whatever. Like Diaz looks like an incredible, you know, signing, um, slotted straight in. So I think if Liverpool do play that high line and they do concede goals, I still think they have so much firepower that they'll score more than the opposition. Um, 
And it only takes, I don't think we'll have a repeat of the Villa um, game, but I do think it would be the odd goal that will be lost. You look at Fornals, should have scored the other day. Um, it will happen occasionally, but I think Liverpool at the moment are just smelling themselves. They feel too good and, you know, going forward, they'll just score more goals in opposition. Quick word about City, right? Uh, from a Liverpool perspective, actually the Manchester derby rolling around to energise City and make them very interested again and take their mind off the chasing pack, probably not great from uh, Liverpool. They, they would have been happy enough for uh, City to be drifting along, coasting, but the energy and injection of uh, meaning yesterday suddenly means that City are back again. So... Uh, yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, but I don't even think I don't think I don't even think City had kind of gone anywhere. Obviously, you know the Spurs performance was disappointing, um, but to, Liverpool are going to have a blimp in a game like City. It's just they just Man City are like machines. They're like robots. Like you know, Pep's blessed with twenty two players that he could he could start any one of them, um, and they still put in a level of performance. You know, City. The question, the question we had on Friday when we were talking about when you couldn't call the game because you didn't know if United would sit in and try and catch them on the counter attack with their speed and their pace, you know. But City just, City just turn up and roll. Like City were only in third gear, did it? like Sunday. Um, that's the scary thing. And, you know, City could have gone up a few more levels if they really, really wanted to. Um, but that's that's look. They've been there, there about the last few seasons, competing on all fronts for every, you know, every. Football uh, trophy they can win. Um, you know they're not going to make it easy for Liverpool. If Liverpool are going to win the Premier League title, excuse me, they're going to have to. You're going to have to do it the hard way, and they're going to have to. You know, if Man City get beaten by Liverpool, then they'll, they'll accept it because City are just going to keep going and they're going to keep winning games. And um, they're a fantastic side. It's interesting because like I've, I've heard people say that all right in the aftermath of yesterday that that City did have a couple of other gears to go to like is that a deliberate decision for, for Manchester City or, or, or I guess it's probably a reaction to the, to the scoreboard late in the game where you do see things like this Hazer kick from, from Cancelo they are kind of like taking the pace a little bit uh, with, with Manchester United there's no getting away from it but is it actually more of a, a subconscious thing that, that seeps in David that you actually can't do anything about it that there is that not a complacency but there's this sense of just dropping down those gears a little bit more than someone like Pep would actually want. He would have wanted them to maybe put the, the foot on the throat a little bit more, I, I suspect, yesterday. Um, I wouldn't say the players are conscious of it while they're playing. Um, for me, it's more, it's, more, it's more about the way you know, the opposition are playing against you. If you look at the second half, yes, as opposed to the first half, United were high-pressing and City had to move the ball quicker. So that means players are you know, obviously more alert, they're sharper. As the second half progressed, you know, United... Look, it's been highlighted by every pundit around, you know, the, the lack of effort, not tracking runners. That's what I kind of mean by City. City didn't really put them to the sword. Like I know they, they came out for one winners, but the players were just kind of keeping the ball. They're jogging around. Like if, if, if United were pressing them hard, then City would have to work harder um, to move the ball, create angles, create opportunities or whatever. But there was none of that in the second half. So you automatically just kind of you don't put in as much effort because it's it becomes like a big possession-based game where you just keep the ball and you just move players around and United players yesterday like they weren't even one they weren't playing as a team but two they weren't even playing as individuals to kind of like there was nobody really charging around kind of going I've had enough of this they're taking the piss out of us so City is just quite happy to keep the ball knock around say do you know what got another game in a few days time We'll just keep the ball and we'll keep you running around and 
you know, if, if something pops up in or on the box, one of us will take a shot or, you know, it's just it's just the way the kind of game unfolded for City that they're saying, well, we're not going to stress ourselves here. I've got a game in a couple of days' time and I don't want to get injured. Last question for you is, uh, are Arsenal now your favourites to make it? Uh, not just the point situation, but also <sighs> their ability to win games that in the past, you know, Watford would have won that game five mm. times out of eight over the last five seasons. Or they would have certainly got a draw out of it. Um, I don't know it's, it's just weird because Arsenal are kind of like tipping along nicely and nobody's really talking about them now obviously they've jumped into that four spot they're a point clear of United they've got three games in hand um, you think if they are to to get seven points out of that then can United bridge that gap it could be very very difficult um, so you'd have to look at Arsenal or, or, or the team in the driving seat just Arteta at the moment I think the best bit of business he's done is get rid of Aubameyang um, not saying that he's not a a very good footballer but there was obviously something going wrong with Aubameyang in the background off the pitch um, and you look at <clears throat> the front three of Saka, Martinelli and Odegaard with Alec, uh, Alexander Lacazette as the striker they just seem to feed off him it seems to be like kind of the father figure and he's got these three young fellas flying and whatever way Arteta has done it you know they, they, they just look good and you know they're getting results of course they had a little bit of a shaky last 10 minutes in the game yesterday um, but as you said there in the past they probably probably would have ended up conceding a goal drawing the game or lost the game um, but they're just finding ways to win and they're just, they just keep going and at the moment you'd, you'd fancy them to go and you know, obviously finish in the top four Alright we'll let you go Dave good stuff thanks a million cheers Cheers guys That's David Modigam this is Weekend Thoughts there a reminder OTBA I'm brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day bit of thunder there in the background was it? Yeah, I'm so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> are you distracted? Like, oh, everything you you like, we're all floating hams to you, are we? Yeah, no. Usually, I, usually, usually, the hunger stays off until about like 10 a.m. But not not this morning for whatever reason. Yeah, obviously, maybe. just just obviously um, working up an appetite here, getting stuck into the well, what do you call it? The top of the show, the weekend's action again. Bewildering. Bewildering. Yeah, it's exactly it. Uh, Consider the, me bewildered. The best player on the Manchester City pitch for 90 minutes yesterday was Bernardo Silva, says RB. Uh, Peter G says the post Ferguson near at Manchester United has to be the biggest failure in Premier League history in terms of rebuilding squads, reshaping a club's playing style, and just waste of money. It is definitely up there with Liverpool after the first Kenny Dalglish period. Uh, how didn't Harry Maguire win man of the match? He assisted with all four goals, says Jared Fitzpatrick. If the wages for footballers weren't so obscenely high, then clearing out Deadwood would be much easier, says Damien. It's kind of, you know, if my granny had balls. Uh, the scouting system is a shambles at Manchester United. Also, 90% of the wages should be win bonus only, says MOC, but then they won't sign for you. That's the point. It's like um, uh, mediocre players will be able to be signed by other teams for money. The weekly Man United post-mortem never tire of hearing their woes. Oh, where are those United fans these days? There used to be loads of them. You'll never walk alone, says Paul McGee. And Bonnie says, Diaz signing for Liverpool shows what United are not doing. Good player for a good price, but room to get even better. The thing is, if he signed for Man United, would he look any good? Yeah, that's, that's, see, that's the key point. In the uh, current squad, like, where would he play? Who yeah. would he be taking the place of? Who would be yeah. defending him? Who would be passing the ball? He'd be playing as probably a number nine. Uh, like, 
uh, Jurgen Klopp is obviously, I mean, no, nothing more needs to be said about what he's done at Liverpool, but in the midst of all their fantastic recruitment, the end product of it is a manager who always does the right thing with them and has an incredible culture in that dressing room. So that is a huge part of it as well. No doubt that the recruitment is excellent. Remember all the money they were getting for the Jordan Ives of the world as well. Yeah. Like that, that, that's exactly the stuff that United haven't done to allow them to make this be seamless. The 1.1 billion racks up because they don't get any money back for anything ever. They never sell when... Like well, the Rashford thing is going to be really interesting now. What would you do? I would sell. I think I would. I would, as well. I would, I would sell, like if, if we're if you're making a business decision. How much are you going to get from? Oh God, yes, twenty-five million. Twenty? Oh no, I'm thinking forty. You're thinking forty. I suppose yeah. he's English. Is a bit of a tax yeah. on that. Uh, one year left in the deal, though. Yeah, but like he's available. So Everton, Newcastle, Palace, they all have money to to buy someone at that level. Like, what, are you, what are you doing though if you're one of those clubs are you, are you investing in someone like Marcus Rashford or uh, would you be uh, pinning your hopes on if you're Crystal Palace finding the next Eze for you, example you probably, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned Palace but um, you know there's a, there's a load of teams at that level who would splash 40 million Villa might spend that money oh here's the thing I don't, I don't disagree that they would but I'm asking if they should. Like I no, mean, uh, like uh, Everton did show that they, you know, they went out and signed Deli Ali, um, like uh, not, not so Alex long ago. Alex Awobi. Alex Awobi. So price. Like they, there's that, more. Actually, I think there's definitely a potential for one of those clubs to to, to sign Marcus Rashford. Like it is. There's obviously a gem of a player there that that will hopefully come good at maybe, some point in his career soon. But maybe he goes abroad. You know, maybe he signs. Maybe he signs for Paris Saint Germain for thirty million, and like that's all a possibility. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Like, I, would I he be think happy to be a sub at, at Paris Saint Germain for a season? Their players will move on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I think that they, there is there's a period now where I, surely PSG wouldn't. You're saying you're, there's no market for him, or the market for him is going to be depressed. Yes, definitely, and it's it's a lower it's a lower rung of club that is going to come in from our, like this, Manchester United are looking like they're going to finish fifth or sixth. They had a load of attacking players out, and Marcus Rashford can't start. Like, it's not like we're talking about a player who can't get into the Liverpool team here, and, and PSG might be interested in that. So why would PSG be interested in Marcus Rashford? <laughs> like, why would any club uh, well, that? Because he, you know, that's how the that's how this works. Yeah, that's how this carousel of of nonsense works. It's like, oh, we'll we'll take him and see. He might be because there's definitely the bones of a really good player there. It's just whether or not some manager has the ego to think that they can fix him. Yeah, I, I agree, but I, I think that it's it's about dropping down a level and for him to, to find that himself. Okay, give me, who, where do you think he most likely ends up and how much? Well, you see, this is the thing, you mentioned everything there and everything just feels like the, an absolute fit for uh, £25 million. Pounds. Um, but I don't think that everything should do that for, for what it's worth. But um, it's hard to argue against the fact that that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, Conor Costello says, Owen... Oh. This, is, this never goes well. Eddie Howe will someday be in the green. No. What a turnaround he's made to that whole football club. Yeah. He has done a, he has done a very good job, hasn't he? Like, uh, to the point that it's not even a conversation anymore about uh, our Newcastle United going to go down and uh, the club we've just been talking about has completely replaced them in that regard. Tonight's, tonight's a huge fixture, everything against Tottenham, uh, in, in the context of, of the relegation battle and in the top four battle. Newcastle up to 14th now. 
at this point and they've got games in hand on uh, on Brighton a game in hand on, on Brighton so they could end up finishing 13th or even 12th before the end of the season so like the, he, he's done an excellent job He's ob- there's obviously a very big reason why that is he's had uh, a blank check uh, for a lot of signings during January but sometimes those signings blow up in your face yeah. so he actually has had to get it together pretty quickly this and it's not QPR under Harry Redknapp no this is the this is also the most high pressure um I guess sequence of the Saudi era at Newcastle United these first few months where yes you can sign players but there's no guarantee that they would gel and keep you in the division and then there would have come the complication of getting relegated so uh, he's managed to ride out that period of very high high stakes high pressure and uh, a really good win for them at the weekend again on Saturday so I think that actually when we're judging, say, who would sign Marcus Rashford next year. And look, people may disagree with me on that. People may think that Rashford would be a good piece of business. But I would say that a club like Everton are more likely to err in that department than uh, than Newcastle will be. Like, I would almost, I would not be surprised next year if, if we're kind of like talk, talking about Newcastle as a, as a bigger club than, than Everton. And maybe it's already the case if you're looking at the, the league position. Oh, but. and, and their, their ability to sign players. They'll be, yeah. They will be signing Champions League players to play in the Premier League and the hope of playing in the Champions League the, the following season because that's how much money they have alright 17 minutes past 9 OTBIM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day you were at Pride Park I was watching the revolution and the greatest story in English football unfold before your eyes they're closing the gap on Reading they are and uh, I think uh, so Red- for anybody who's unfamiliar with this uh, Derby have been docked gazillion points and should be already relegated they, they would be well within their rights to have um folded up their tents in the style of Manchester United and the season will be over and they'd be on the beach but instead Wayne Rooney is getting them to uh, I, I don't know is it play good football but certainly they're winning games oh, and playing, they won again you were there cheering them on playing, playing really Lust, nice football lustily lustily yeah uh, scouting report because half the team is Irish isn't it um, there will be I think in 15 position right now if they hadn't got that 21 point deduction Reading of course had a point deduction themselves a much uh, less significant one um, so Reading are currently 5 points clear of them but they also have a game in hand so it, it's very much stacked against Derby at the moment they've I think they lost 3 games on the bounce before uh, the weekend win against Barnsley Barnsley were absolutely atrocious and uh, they're getting relegated for sure uh, Derby were not atrocious and in fact they actually looked really good uh, Jason Knight didn't start came off the bench they love him the fans absolutely love him I think that maybe he was just a little bit exhausted after the last little while I don't think it was a, a tactical decision still a kid still a kid um, you obviously had Festi Ebiseli who is uh, one of the, the, the I guess the standard Irish players in the division this season hadn't quite realised that he's actually a left back or at least that's where Rooney played him on, not, on, on Saturday yeah he's a winger because he played in the second half as a right winger and uh, unfortunately in both of those halves he was on the opposite side of the pitch to me so I didn't get any you know close up uh, scouting reports of, of Festi unfortunately but uh, you know I was in the same ground as him and he looked good he's really good in these tight positions uh, always making the right decision even against a, a packed enough defence getting out of trouble didn't really see the blistering pace too much because Barnsley had such a, a deep line but um, yeah he, look, he, look, he looks really comfortable on the ball and then obviously we were talking about this guy last week but Aaron Cashin their uh, new centre back who's played for 
uh, not new, but he's come through as a centre back for Derby. He's played underage football for the Republic of Ireland. He looks really good. It's like he's uh, conspicuously small for a centre back. Maybe just because he's standing beside Curtis Davis, but really composed on the ball. Did make one error, which almost led to a Barnsley goal. But other than that, he was no perfect. And he looks like a real player. And they really like him. The fans really like him. And they, they, they were they're in love with the three Irish people, but not on the same level as they're in love with Wayne Rooney right now. I think they would etch him a statue right now if they had to. If they get relegated, is there a chance Rooney sticks around like and, and brings them up? Because they, they will come up straight away if he sticks around. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it depends on what happens financially because I think there's a fear that if they go down that there will be further be no financial complication. Yeah, right. exactly. That's that's uh, There's a genuine existential threat. And Mike Ashley is standing on the sideline going, oh, let me in, let me in, yeah. let me in. I'm like, oh, that would take away all the sense of oh, we love you, this is a great underdog story. It, it certainly would but um, yeah no it's a it, like a good stadium really, really and like great atmosphere there and like I mean the, the Irish tint of that has been definitely one of the more, the more interesting elements of this year's championship if they get out of it from this position it will still be it will be an even bigger miracle now than it was a few weeks ago they've got to play at Bournemouth and Blackburn I think in the next week and both of those are obviously chasing automatic promotion Alright OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day at 9.21 Alan Quillen standing by with your rugby next OTB AM Alright, 22 minutes past 9 Alan Quinlan is with us host of the Red 78 podcast which you can get if you just search Red 78 Alan, good morning to you How are you getting on? Good, Jared. Thanks, and yourself? It's England week uh, Manu Tulagi is definitely out There's a bit of doubt about Curry, and the English rugby media are ripping Eddie Jones a new one saying it's time to get rid of him He's got two games to save his England managerial career coaching career uh, they're mad aren't they he's just building for the World Cup he's just cycling through players he's treating this like the National League when the championship is around the corner probably I think uh, he seems quite calm and relaxed he's talking about a new Eng- the New England that we've seen so far um, they haven't been great and uh, you know a lot of the former English players have been uh, ramping up a bit of pressure on him the English press this week uh, last week and just talking about how pivotal this game is. I think it's probably a nervousness and a worry and a fear about what Ireland going to Twickenham and, and possibly beating England there. I think that would um, really intensify the pressure pressure on Eddie Jones. But look, they don't look the same as they were um, a couple of years ago. And he, he is rebuilding. And when you are rebuilding, you need a little bit of patience. But... Um, I'm not sure we spoke about this last week about just the style they're trying to play you know they've two kind of ball playing midfielders um, they've lost a lot of power um, some injuries two Langies a, a huge loss to any team but the Vunapolo brothers I watched Billy Vunapolo at the weekend against Leicester and uh, he's still incredibly effective um, I'm not really sure what's happened is it down to a fitness thing and um, but you know, you imagine he'd still try and keep him some way involved um, because he is so effective and aggressive and, and, and such a brilliant ball carrier. But um, they are under pressure. Lawrence Delalio's podcast this week, I was listening to it, and he was saying, "Who is he trying to fool?" He was trying to convince Eddie Jones was trying to convince people last week in the press that they're playing really good attacking rugby. And Lawrence was saying, uh, "Who is he trying to fool? He can't fool the English fans." and and there is a lot of pressure this week. It'll be interesting to see when he comes out with the lad. This game two years ago, he spoke about Ireland being the United Nations of rugby with, you know, the the Irish qualified players, mainly South Africans, a couple of New Zealanders. Um, he'll probably have some swipe this week at Ireland. 
hopefully that'll at least uh, make things interesting before we go and beat them because that's what's going to happen here right we are we're a much better team than them at the moment we're, we've got an identity we're further down the line we should be beating this England team at the moment particularly given all the doubts that England have we should be confident um, going there anyway but it, there's no guarantees because obviously um, it's, it's a really desperate kind of um, situation for them in a sense that you know, you you never want to lose to they'll never want to lose to Ireland at home, and they've been pretty dominant against us the last number of years. Bar last year in, in the game in the Aviva, where Ireland played really well and kind of resurrected their their season, and um, kind of that was the start of a lot of change the way this team, the Irish team, was playing. So it's um, they'll still try and be very physical. They've they've you know Laws and Atoje, um, very powerful physical guys, Sinclair. Ellis Genge I think Colin Dickey is going to be a big loss to him and it probably balances balances itself out with Andrew Porter being out Porter's going to be a big loss to Ireland Um, but you know they have a number of injury issues as well Johnny Hill is not available Sam Underhill coming back in gives them a bit of ballast edge aggression Um, and if Curry is fit and they could play Underhill and Curry well those two guys can be uh, you know incredibly effective so it's. I think we should be confident, Ger, but not not too confident because you know it still will be a pretty physical challenge for Ireland. Is there already a situation emerging where the game plan is a little bit predictable in how much it's based on Marcus Smith at ten? Is it like a little less fluid than it used to be? Well, he's Eddie Jones is kind of saying that they play two three phases, just trying trying to get a foothold and get some shape, and then his reliance is on Smith and. Um, you know, Henry Slade, who played 12 the last day against England to try and see where the space is and, and play off the cuff a little bit, which, you know, sometimes we we we, we criticise teams for being over prescriptive, if you like, and, and organised and structured. Um, he's trying to play a little bit less structured, I think. But still, England kicked the ball a lot themselves and... Uh, they, they just lack that little bit of penetration. They have a lot of footballers and, and ball players in that back line, but um, they were quite lateral against Wales a lot of the time and um, and struggled to find any sort of identity. So um, when he says the new look England, I'm not really sure what 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 they're doing at the moment. But um, you know, it's it's a, it's a strange one on because um, it's hard to judge them. They were really poor in in Scotland. They had a lot of possession but just lacked any sort of uh, ruthlessness to, to put Scotland away. And when you look at the possession stats and stuff and territory after the game, um, you should England should have won that game. Um, Italy, hard to judge us, 33-0. Um, I think that was the score. And um, they were lacklustre a little bit at times there. And look, look like they're not really sure what they're doing sometimes, particularly when they get into multi-phase. But I'm sure they'll be probably... You know they'd be better organised this week and probably better for that hard-fought win against Wales at home. But on the balance of what we've seen so far, Ireland should be pretty confident going there and um, confident in getting results and confident of implementing their own plan there. But you never know. You're going to get a physical... Uh, Ireland don't want to get ahead of themselves or, or the public or the media because you know England will be really kind of physically 
aware and, and ready for Ireland and, and looking to impose themselves. Bookies have essentially a 50-50 game, Ireland's slight favourites um, heading into it. These are the tests that we need to learn how to navigate if we are going to be successful over the next couple of years um, in our group in the World Cup and then the, the opponents that we're coming up against in uh, a potential quarter-final if we make it that far. So, from that perspective... What are you looking for? Okay, so front up to the physical stuff, but what what do we need to see pointers about game management, about intelligence? Yeah, about I think that's really important. You mentioned it, Jared, game management and composure, because what what are England going to do? If you were in, if you were England here, you're going to try and be physical. A lot of these guys would have been involved in, in English teams in the last number of years who physically got the better of Ireland. So they're going to try and work off that template straight away. And they always do English teams. They still have a big physical side. Um, Atoje, Laws, Don Brandt, if he plays. They're all going to try and annoy Tyke Burning and of, get him of sent course. off. Of yeah. course. Yeah, well, they're going to try and, I don't know about get him sent off, but they're trying to get, a, if you know, they're tr- going to try and stop Ireland's flow. Ireland's accuracy in November and in, in particularly in that Welsh game um, had moments of it in France um, and, and the type of game they're trying to play um, how do you stop that? You stop that with line speed and aggression. And, and Sean Edwards, France, did it defensively and stopped Ireland and physically overpowered them. The breakdown is probably the key here, and that's an area where Ireland needs to get back to where they were in November. Um, France really unsettled them there and caused them issues. And and that lineout, I kind of highlighted the lineout. Just what kind of type of possession and ball you get off the lineout, and if Ireland get, can hold on to the ball and be composed. Um, well then they can implement the game they want to play and that expansive uh, multi-phase game their accuracy and their lines of running and all that stuff have been very impressive so far so I'm not saying England solely to beat Ireland or have to just stop them but it's 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 probably it'll be their biggest focus this week how do they get off the line really quickly how do they go after Ireland's break well, so that's, that's and, them and, what, what do we do if they do all that to us we just need to be better um, we need to be more composed. We probably lacked a little bit of enthusiasm getting into the breakdown. Accuracy, which was surprising um, because it's an area that, that, as I said, Ireland were really good at. Um, line out intelligence. And and for me, that's about, you know, being a little bit cynical at times. France were quite cynical there. They closed the gap, they threw jumpers across. And you're going to get that from Otoje. You're going to get him niggling in the line out around the side of the breakdown and Ireland just need to, to, to be really alert to what England are trying the pressure England are going to put on them because usually Jerry, in, 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 in any sport it's the pressure you absorb how can you cope with that and those kind of moments when you were defending um, can you keep your composure uh, keep your patience in defence and that's what usually wins games in these these, these tight games um, and enables you to play. So I think it's the type of pressure England put on Ireland. Um, I wouldn't be, it's a very, very risky statement, but I wouldn't be overly concerned that England are going to cut us open with, with their play. Um, I think they can be effective and they'll kick their penalties and they'll try and get into Ireland's half. Um, and for Ireland, they've got to put pressure on Marcus Smith because if he goes well, you know, he can cut you open. But the flip side of that is if you get in his face and defend really well um, he can force things a little bit Are there any selection issues from an Ireland perspective or does it all is it all fairly obvious um, James Lowe comes back in who plays in midfield Sexton starts 
yeah, I think Sexton does start. I think this is, um, you know, this is a vital game for Ireland. I think they're still in with a shout in the championship. They'll be hoping Wales maybe will do them a, a favour on Friday night. Not really sure. Um, I think France are, are are on the front foot now and it'll be hard to stop them. But um, the second row, you know, if you have Ty Byrne, James Ryan and, and Ian Henderson all available, who plays there? Um, the temptation could be to put Henderson in with, with, with Byrne. I think Byrne probably starts because um, James Ryan and Henderson were out for, 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 for the Italian game. Um, the midfield, again, it's a bit of a conundrum. You're splitting hairs, Robbie Henshaw, Bondiaki. Um, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. But look, I think Ireland pretty good shape from an injury profile. Andrew Porter obviously is a little bit of a loss and you, you lose some stuff around the field from him. But, you know, Keane Healy will, from a set point point of view, will, 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 there won't be any weakness there. But um, it'll be a pretty predictable Irish team, I think, which is good and a consistent Irish team. All right, so you're feeling good about life? Well, I don't know if I'm feeling good about life, but I'd be fairly confident uh, this Ireland team. I'd be disappointed. I'd be really disappointed. I think this is, you, you said it at the start there, this is this is one now that we've got to be ruthless and we've got to go there and and get a result and get a win because I think on paper and where we're at at the moment, we're probably a better side. But that doesn't guarantee you the result. But I think mentally it's a really crucial one now that what did we really learn from Italy? That's the only kind of downside for me is um, I think, you know, when you look at what France did to Scotland, a lot of what we did in France was really, really impressive. Um, given the t- type of physicality and pressure that we were under at times. And when you look back at that game, if they're able to fix some of the things that went wrong, particularly at the breakdown and line out, um, there's no guarantee they'll get all that right this week. But if they if they tighten up and get their breakdown better, I think they can play and, and, and be confident they can go there and get a win. All right. Look, we'll leave it there for today, but we'll uh, we'll get your thoughts on the team later on in the week. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. That's Alan Quinlan giving us his thoughts there. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Also brought to you by the thunder in Owen's stomach this morning. Mm. Non-stop. I know. It's very impressive. It's like... Is it coming out on air? Can everybody hear it? I hope so. <laughs> I Sorry about that, everyone. I'm so hungry. That's all right. What are you going to have? I don't know. I've just been living on a diet of coffee for the morning. Probably not a good idea. And now banana takes it all away. That's that's all you need. Uh, Fergus says, Rory has mastered the art of the top 10 finish without ever really being in contention. Jeff says, the classic Rory is the best player in the world on his game. Jesus, lads, that ship sailed a long time ago. And Shane says, no mention of Cavan win versus Sligo. That call. No mention of Cavan's win versus Sligo. Yeah, Cavan best team in Division Four. Postman yeah. doesn't celebrate delivery of the post. No, well, exactly. I think uh, did we all? Oh no, sorry. Adrian predicted Sligo would be Cavan and Friday Quick Picks. The rest of us. Congratulations to uh, John B, who wanted Rory in red and the cork hurlers in green. You've won a Gillette Labs shaving pack from the performance rankings a little bit earlier on. And uh, tomorrow we'll be live building up to England in the Six Nations, talking football and much more as well. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.